Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMALOT. And this week, we're going over the last event in 2020 for the UFC. It's UFC Vegas 17, headlined by Stephen Wonderboy Thompson and Jeff Hands of Steel Neal. A very, very fun welterweight scrap in that main event. Uh, Jeff Neal finally gets that step up in competition that he's been waiting for, and this might be his opportunity to burst on the scene, especially to be able to capture a victory over a veteran like Wonderboy Thompson, who's seen the top of this division. Um, a couple other bangers of fights, too. We got Marlon Moraes versus uh, Rob Fonz. We got Jose Aldo against uh, Jose Aldo against Marlon Vera uh, Chaos Williams versus Michelle Pereira uh, Greg Hardy versus Marcin Tybura great fight Jillian Robertson versus Tyler Santos should be great too both of them coming in on short notice as both of their opponents had fallen out over the last couple of weeks uh, Alex Morono taking a step up against Anthony Pettis here um, yeah Dolce Lungiambula versus Carl Roberson which was supposed to go down a couple of days uh, a couple of weeks ago as well that's a great fight and then obviously the return of Rick Glenn who has been off for over two years now taking on Carlton Minus there's a couple other uh, big names on this card too but I'm very very stoked and very excited for this fight uh, or this card it's a great card to end off this uh, crazy year I was actually talking to one of my buddies about it and it's uh, it's been 25 straight events uh, since uh, UFC 251 back in July where we've had a card every single week and on some of those weeks we've had you know uh, a Wednesday card as well too so there's been a ton of entertainment when it comes to the UFC since July and I can't believe we're finally at the end of it it feels like this 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 has been insane like it's just been week after week after week starting up on 12 to 14 fights a week and then having to sometimes uh you know do another breakdown during fight week due to late minute replacements or something like that so um yeah happy to wrap the bow on 2020 we're uh just ever so slightly in the green this year i'm hoping to cap off this uh, event in the green as well so we can have another profitable year all in all but uh yeah it's been a crazy year Let's just put it that way. Uh, COVID and everything, uh, and then having uh, just consecutive events has just been a, an absolute um, shit show on my end in terms of being able to stay up to date with the work and, and putting in my best effort for all these podcasts and all the research. So, uh, yeah, 2020 has definitely been an interesting one. Better than 2019 if we're talking betting record-wise. Uh, so I'm happy about that, and I hope to end in the green here uh, with this event coming up uh, on December 19th. A uh, couple things before we get into it. Uh, the Lock of the Night Challenge. So the last event of the current game is going to be this weekend. Uh, and then we start a new game on January for the January 16th card. Uh, it's going to be a sixth month. It goes from January all the way to the end of June. Um, and it's a very simple challenge. A lot of people are liking it. Uh, the steam is picking up every season and every edition of the game. Uh, but quick rules for you guys, just so you guys know. Uh, for every UFC event, you're going to go out there and play, make one uh, bet. And it's going to be um, you know, a parlay, a straight, uh, a money line, whatever the hell it is. Uh, it's a one, one five-unit bet for every single UFC event. And whoever has the most profit at the end of that six-month stretch... Uh, or at least the top three get paid out with the, whatever the pot is. So right now we have about 22 people in the $25 lock of the night challenge. Um, 
I can't remember what the total of that is. I, I don't keep any of it. All of it goes back to the to the prize winners. So the pool is completely given back to the top three people. Uh, the dog of the night challenge is taking off a little bit more too. That's every ten events. So we're still we still we're about halfway through that. That one won't restart until the end of January. But we got about thirty seven people in that game. Uh, so the these lock of the night and dog of the night challenges are really picking up um, and are expecting even a bigger turnout this time around for the lock of the night challenge. So if you're interested, we have a twenty five dollar game as well as a hundred dollar game. If you're in hit me up on twitter dm me and i'd be happy to get you set up uh you know give you all the rules make sure you understand everything and then get you signed up and ready to go for the new season which starts in january so once again if you're interested in that hit me up through uh twitter at mmalotn on the dms and i'd be happy to sign you up there's a ton of great people already in the game uh but i just want to lock this up and get it going so that i don't have too much to worry about once the the new year kicks off and uh have a surge of people jumping in just as they always do for some reason everybody jumps in during the deadline and it really fucks me up in terms of making sure I have everything organized so uh, the best way you guys can help me out is just signing up a little bit earlier so I can slowly uh, you know, get the game going and put everything as it needs to be. Uh, so yeah, if you're interested in the Lock the Night Challenge uh, hit me up on Twitter and I'd be happy to set you up and next, I just want to drop on the, the Patreon once again. Uh, shout out to everybody on the Patreon. We're up to 220 people. Absolutely insane the amount of support that I've been getting. All thanks to you guys. I'm able to get closer to, to leaving the 9 to 5. It's, it's, it's something that I've always dreamed of doing, being able to do this full time. Not really just um, lean on the winnings as a as a solid source of income but more so something else like other mma revenue streams that i'm creating like the tape index the patreon uh my appearances on other podcasts and stuff like that it's it's insane how much we've come in the last two and a half years but the respect and and the reputation continues to grow on a week-to-week basis as well as the support on the podcast like hitting the 4k mark on a regular basis now was amazing i hope that we can keep that going 5k 6k 7k even get into the five digits at one point i'm really looking Looking forward to that so shout out to everybody for the support the patreon is the best way to support your boy five bucks a month you get a ton of uh great perks as well as every single pick that i make uh the best bets and props article which everyone seems to love and then early access to every breakdown that you're about to see later in this podcast as soon as i'm done recording it i throw it on the patreon so everybody has first access to it first before i actually get it out to the public so uh, a couple other things on there something cool that i want to be starting in J- january as well too um with the patreon but i'll wait for the first event there before i announce that but i think i i got some uh, financial incentives for people to sign up to the patreon i got something cool cooking up that i can't wait to share with you guys all right that's about it uh i don't want to ramble on too much longer you guys are here for the breakdowns for this insane card we had 15 fights at first a couple have fallen off i think we're at four, 13 or 14 now uh so there's plenty of podcasts to be had uh so we might as well get into it shout out to everybody again again if you haven't hit subscribe on, on the youtube channel make sure you guys do that and hit the like as well too because that helps your boy out a lot all right let's get into the breakdowns appreciate you guys checking out the episode and i hope you find these breakdowns to be very useful and helpful in making your decisions on your bets for this weekend looks like i actually forgot to do my ufc 256 betting recap so i'm just going to input that here real quick before we get into the breakdowns but um we'll go over the event it was a minor losing event let's start off with the lock of the night play which was tony ferguson had him five units on minus 163. Did not expect Charles Oliveira to have that type of performance. Uh, I was telling somebody, I'm like, even if I didn't 
uh, or if I didn't have taken Tony Ferguson as my lock of the night play, I was going to take the under two and a half in that fight as my lock of the night play. And that still wouldn't have hit either. Charles Oliveira goes out there and absolutely dominates Tony Ferguson in the grappling realm. Something that not a lot of people, I think, have, would have expected. Um, and, you know, the way that Charles did it as well, too, was very, very impressive. I thought we'd see a little bit of resistance from Tony Ferguson, but we legit saw nothing. Like, he was he was stumped. He just didn't know how to get out of those positions from Charles. And Charles did a really good job of dragging it there time and time again and kind of just maintaining that top position and accruing that control time and it worked out for him so big shout out to Charles Oliveira who picks up the biggest one of his career I think it's now an eight or nine fight winning streak that he's on so only big things for him here on out all right uh, another loss on the night was uh, minus 1.5 units I had plus 140 on Jacare Souza against Kevin Holland it was looking great Jacare Souza got him down and then Kevin Holland decides to throw these bungalows and absolutely starch Jacare Souza so that was very uh that was surprising the way that he was able to generate so much power from his knees and from his back and and hurting Jacare the way that he did and then finishing him the way that he did I think it was one of the most aesthetically dominating knockouts that we've ever seen having somebody on their knees just crumpled backwards but they're not able to fully go backwards because their legs are kind of just continuously springing them up and we see Kevin Holland just throwing down shots ridiculous shots so big win for Kevin Holland there we get minus 1.5 units there um Next up, we had a 1.5 units at the on the over one and a half on the Junior Dos Santos and Cyril Ghana fight. Uh, that catches for plus 1.25 units. That was close. That was very, very close. Um, I think it catches with like four or five seconds. That was absolutely amazing that uh, Ghana was just like, all right, I'm all clear for the over one and a half. Let me go for it. And that's exactly what he did. So good, good hit there. And then lastly, we also hit uh, 2.94 units on uh, Gavin Tucker to uh, to beat Billy Quarantillo at plus 147. Thought that was a solid spot. Very happy to hit that, especially at two units. My two-unit underdog plays have been absolute fire as of late. I, I, I'm trying to remember the other ones, but the other one that does definitely come to mind was Glover Teixeira over Tiago Santos. I had him two units. I, can't, I think it was plus 200. He was that crazy number that we got there. But even Gavin Tucker here at plus 147. Uh, yeah, solid. Uh, very happy to hit that underdog spot. I also had 0.25 units on Gavin Tucker to win the fight via KO at plus 900. I thought there was a ton of value there, to be honest, because um, I thought that Quarantilla was hittable. That was definitely true, but we did see a little bit more of a grappling approach from Gavin Tucker to kind of secure that decision victory. So I'm not too mad at that. Good one for uh, Gavin Tucker regardless, and happy to cash that. And I did gain some Patreon members just strictly from that Gavin Tucker fight, even though I lost a couple Patreons because I lost the Tony Ferguson fight. So it ends up balancing itself out. Shout out to everybody that realizes, you know, it's it's not just about the bets. It's about the reads and your ability to call fights that are very, very close that a lot of people seem to be on the other side of and that's what happened in this fight with Billy Quarantillo I was getting flack the entire week for my Gavin Tucker pick and then when it cashes everybody goes out there and, and apologizes to your boy so you got to be confident you got to stick with your guns and don't let what the masses and the public are saying uh kind of skew your feelings and and the direction that you're going for these fights so uh, there's another example of it right there. The week before, Jake Collier, same thing. I got starched all week for that. And then he goes out there and wins that fight to a T in terms of how I expected it to go. So 
I'm happy with the turnout. I'm happy with, uh, you know, calling that Gavin Tucker win. But uh, all in all, we end up in in, in the negative at minus one, uh, sorry, minus 2.56 units. Uh, it hurts to have an L there, but uh, there are, uh, you know, some glass half full moments here with the Gavin Tucker win and even the over one and a half on the JDS and Ghana fight. So, uh, yeah, it is what it is. Uh, we move we move along to UFC Vegas 17, which I feel like has some great betting opportunities. Personally, I already have my lock of the night play made. If you guys want to know what that is, check out the Patreon. I already have it posted over there. Otherwise, if you want to wait for it to be free to the public, you got to wait till Friday. The line might move. Who knows? Can't promise anything. But I am actually looking to make the rest of my plays uh, in the next day or two as well. So I think I'll have a total of three plays for this card, and one of them is already posted, which happens to be my lock of the night play. So make sure you guys check that out. All right, now let's get into the breakdowns. Rick Glenn versus Carlton Minus. We got minus 325 for the returning Gladiator Rick Glenn and plus 265 for Carlton Minus, who just recently made his UFC debut. So let's start off with uh, the Alaskan uh, Carlton Minus. He is fighting out of Anchorage, Alaska. Um, that's where he spends most of his time. Uh, and he did debut for the UFC back in at August, the August 22nd fight night card, which I believe was headlined by Pedro Munoz and Frankie Edgar. Uh, he took on another UFC newcomer in Matthew Semmelsberg and that was a pretty decent fight you know uh breaking down Carlton's game leading up to that Matthew fight it was pretty much seeing a guy that uh liked the striking game pretty much just revolved his game around that had a very good jab moved quite well but really lacked power in his shots hence why I feel like uh, most of his victories recently have come via decision uh his fight against Sean Ellis he was able to just keep the distance and kind of just pick him apart from the outside and I thought he was going to be able to be successful with that uh same type of game plan against Matthew Summersberger who most of his finishes uh or most of his victories have come via finish so I was wondering how he would deal with the you know the consistent output and and jab of Carlton Minus uh you know later in the fight however Summersberger landed a ton of great shots on uh Minus hurting him a couple times landing a couple takedowns as well when needed uh and ultimately took home a decision victory so Carlton Minus picked up his second loss that night his first loss came to Rick Story at PFL, where he got uh, RNC'd in the second round. Now get against Rick Glenn, this is a fight for him to kind of really establish establish his position within the UFC, uh, given Rick Glenn being off for over two years now. He's had a couple injuries. I believe it was a hip injury, surgeries, uh, a, a pretty much a long and tumultuous road to get back to the UFC. Uh, you know, after taking that loss to Kevin Aguilar in November of 20, 2018, um, he is expecting a kid in February too. So I'm sure that might have a little bit to do with him uh, probably making this comeback. Um, but uh, he is 31 years old. So he definitely has a lot of fights still in him. This is going to be his 29th MMA fight. Um, he's been around the block. I've actually worked a couple of shows that he fought on up here in Ontario as well. But he has been in the UFC for the last little while, accruing a record of 3-3. Three and three. Uh, three wins, not too bad over Philippe Nover. Uh, that being that he gave Gavin Tucker uh, and then the split decision against Dennis Bermudez. But he has dropped fights to Evan Dunham in 2016, Miles Jury in 2017, and then Kevin Aguilar in 2018. Now, in those fights against Miles Jury and Kevin Aguilar, it seemed like he got outstruck. And uh, pre-tape, I thought, you know, Rick Glenn, my, uh, from what I remember, had pretty high output, uh, pretty good pressure, and pretty much just sticking in his opponent's faces more often than not. However, 
looking closer at these fights, it seems like it's not as convincing as I originally thought it would have been. And now I feel like Carlton Myers is a little bit more alive than I had originally expected. Um, with that said, I'm not the most confident in taking Carlton Minus here, but to take him via decision at plus 490, I think is a, a solid head spot if you do have some exposure on Glenn, especially in parlays, given that he's you know such a high uh, high favorite here, or a heavy favorite, I should say. Now, I feel like I got to trust the, the veterancy of Rick Roland a little bit more. However, his layoff does give me some reason for concern. Uh, this is a fight that I did expect to find a reason to parlay Glenn with something else that I wanted, you know, better odds with for the uh, later on in the card. However, once I really start to dig into it, I'm a little bit more skeptical. Now, I don't see a finish transpiring here. I feel like if Glenn is going to be successful in getting his hand raised, uh, he's going to need to implement his uh, grappling and wrestling game a little bit more. As I feel like if this stays on the feet, it could be a lot closer than he wants it to be. Now, Call to Minus has decent output. Rick Glenn does as well, but uh, it does seem to taper off for Rick Glenn when he's fighting somebody that is putting up a little bit more of a resistance than a guy like Gavin Tucker, who seemed to be gassed after that one and a half round mark. I feel like Carlton Minus will be around for the full 15 minutes, and unless Rick Glenn, uh, you know, decides to take this to the ground it's going to be much much closer i feel like he does have that in his back pocket and also an interesting change of pace here for rick Glenn. also it seems like he um he changed his uh training camp he uh was originally at um uh, team alpha male over there in sacramento and now it seems like he's been bouncing around a bit he spent some time in milwaukee but as of right now it seems like he's set up shop in des moines iowa training at uh, i believe absolute uh, mma and fitness or something like that a gym that i'm not completely familiar with nor am i familiar with much of the uh, training partners that he's been getting in rounds with so i'm um, not sure the reason for the move for rick glenn uh team alpha male maybe just didn't work out for him um but i'm interested to see how much of an impact a, a training camp like this, especially a gym that seems relatively new, uh, how much of an impact it'll actually have on a guy who's as veteran as uh, uh, Rick Glenn is. So uh, I'll still go, go with Glenn to win this five year decision. I feel like him, uh, you know, possibly threatening with the takedown. I haven't really seen too much from Carlton Minus in terms of defending takedowns and and really having too good of a jiu-jitsu game off of his back. So I think he might be out of... Uh, out of luck if this fight does hit the ground however if he's able to keep it on his feet um he can make it definitely way more closer than the odds suggest so that gives me a little bit of pause also the 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 long layoff for rick Glenn, who knows what he's going to come back looking like um yeah a, a very very tough fight in my opinion for rick Glenn. definitely uh should be closer than what the odds suggest but i'm just not the most confident in pulling the trigger on carlton minus either here so i'll go with rick Glenn to win this fight via decision but uh yeah my initial thoughts of wanting to parlay rick Glenn are definitely not there anymore after running the tape so uh once again rick Glenn via decision cody durden versus jimmy flick we got minus 165 on the brick flick and we got plus 145 on cody durden now this is a very very fun fight to uh it was fun to break down first and foremost but it's also 
very fun in terms of what these guys can potentially bring to this fight. So minus 265 is what the line is for this fight to not go to decision, and it absolutely makes sense. Let's start off with Cody Durden, who's already had one fight in the UFC. He's gone to a draw pretty much with Chris Gutierrez. Uh, I believe he had a 10-8 first round where he pretty much got Gutierrez uh, down within 30 seconds, I believe, and then just rode out the entire fight. Uh, or that entire round, uh, looking for submissions, landing some good ground and pound, uh, but just wasn't able to get the the finish there. Chris Gutierrez, Chris Gutierrez did a good job in the last two rounds to go out there and keep this fight on the feet, albeit uh, he got, did get taken down in the last 45 seconds of the second round. But outside of that, he did a good job of keeping it on the feet and uh, kind of just picking apart Cody Durden from on top. And most people expected that to happen if this fight did stay on the feet. Uh, however, uh, I think there was a ton of value on Cody Durden at those crazy odds. I believe he was roughly around plus 230, plus 250 for that fight. Regardless, everybody's bets uh, gets voided as this fight ends up going to a draw. Um... But uh, yeah, that's pretty much his style. He likes to get the fight to the ground. You know I mean, he he has the USA wrestling tattoo over his left shoulder, and uh, that usually means you know what I mean, the guy has a pretty good uh, wrestling background. And uh, you got to say the same thing for Cody Durden here. Uh, striking looks like it could use a little bit of work, but he does definitely have power in his hands. Uh, likes to move forward pretty much at all times, but it's obvious that his game plan is more often than not to get the fight to the ground. He has good submissions. He has a ton of submission victories and a bunch of uh, ground and pound victories as well, too. Uh, he even has a slam victory on his uh, record, but then again, he was fighting a guy that was 0-1 that night. Um, I like what I see from the kid. I think he has a good amount of potential. Uh, he's 29 years old, so he really has to start to get it going in terms of like making a move towards the top. Obviously, he hasn't been defeated since, uh, what was that, March of 2018. So he's currently on a, where's that, two, four, six, seven fight winning streak, or at least eight fight unbeaten streak if you want to take this draw into consideration. But this is a tough fight in terms of being able to implement his game uh, without putting himself into danger. Now, I like to refer to these fights as like the, the Ben Askren and uh, Damian Maia fight, or at least that's the type of template we have for this fight. We have a strong wrestler, Going up against a guy that has a very diverse uh, set of skills when we talk about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. You know, all you need to see is Jimmy Flick's last fight against Nate Smith, which was on the contender series, to know that this guy loves hunting for the choke. And that's more often than not uh, how he gets his fights done. He has a ton of victories by submission. Let me get you the actual number there. He has 13 victories by dis uh, submission out of his 15 fights. The other two went to a decision. Hasn't notched a knockout finish or a ground and pound finish. The guy's always hunted for the sub. Um, he does look slightly uncomfortable on the feet when the fight does, uh, you know, take place on the feet. Um, he did end up losing via punches to Chris Gutierrez as well as Ray Rodriguez, who are both in the UFC. Uh, but he's still able to go out there and like submit guys. Uh, last three fights, all submission victories. I like his style in terms of you know attacking submissions as often as he is. Now the question here is: Does Cody Durden have a good enough uh, submission defense to not get tapped here? He has gotten rear naked choked by Ryan Hollis way back in 2018, uh, but no one has really been close up until the, that point, or since then, I should say. Um, I wouldn't even be entirely surprised if this fight ends up taking place on the feet for the most part, and uh, I feel like I would have to trust Durden a little bit more on the feet. Um, but uh, I don't know. I don't know what it is about Flick. Like he has this this way of always initiating the grappling exchanges, whether it's one way or another. Uh, 
fuck, this is a very tough fight. I'm definitely going to be passing it. The only thing I would recommend if anybody wants to take a play on this fight, and I know it's a little bit juicy, but that fight doesn't go to decision at minus 265 is very, very intriguing. But uh, this is a very, very tough fight to call. Um, fuck. I'm going to I'm gonna go with the... I'm going to go with Flick here, though. I, I feel like he will be able to initiate the grappling in some way or another. Um, you know, Cody Durden obviously should have good takedown defense, uh, being from like a wrestling background. But all it takes from Jimmy Flick is a trip or a, or even hopping on an opponent's back or something like that. And this guy can definitely get his uh, jiu-jitsu game going. Again, the longer this fight stays on the feet, the more um, I'd be questioning the Jimmy Flick's uh, ability to win this fight. However, I just expect with his his pressure and the way that he fights, almost like a like I don't want to compare to, to Tony Ferguson too much as uh, I don't want to spear in the face of uh, Tony Ferguson, but I think that Flick has some potential to definitely go out there and get some victories. He's 30 years old, uh, you know, 15-5 and five record on a three-fight winning streak. Fuck, man. This is a very, very tough fight. I mean, it's definitely a tough uh, toss-up for me. Uh, you know, shout-out to anybody that managed to get in on Cordy Durden uh, at that plus one, plus 170-ish line. He even got up to plus 185 at a certain point. Uh, but, you know, people are understanding the love on Cordy Durden. I get it, too. I just don't feel comfortable betting on him in this spot. So I'll go with Jimmy Flick to win this fight by submission. I think he eventually locks up something on Cody. Uh, but it's, it's a very, very tough fight. Um very, very entertaining fight. I do think that we'll see a lot of scrambles. Uh, we'll see some good exchanges on the feet too. But uh, for, for the fans' uh, perspective, I do hope we do see Cody Durden, um, you know, seek the takedowns just as he normally does. Uh, unfortunately for him, that kind of puts himself into more danger. So I got, I'm got. i really interested to see how he approaches this. If he does go the grappling route, how good his submission defense is and if he's going to be able to keep Jimmy Flick, uh, you know, off of him in terms of submission attempts for 15 minutes or even, you know, however long it takes him to potentially finish Jimmy as well too. So once again, I'll go with Jimmy Flick to win by submission, but very, very sketchy fight here. Tafan and Chukwi versus Jamie Pickett. We got minus 300 on Nchukwi and uh, plus 250 on Jamie Pickett. The over-under is obviously set at one and a half with the honor being minus 120. Let's start off with Tafan and Chukwi who's coming off a contender series victory over Almatavo. Uh, Almatavao. I tried. I swear I tried. Uh, but that was on the contender series. Knocked him out with a beautiful head kick in round two. Uh, phenomenal performance for him there. Showed a lot of patience. Showed a lot of um, durability too. There were some good moments for Al in there as well. But Tafan truly showed his uh, durability and his ability to stay patient and wait for the proper opening to actually get that finish. Um, in so he has three amateur fights as well, all of which he was able to get finishes in, in as well. And then obviously his four fight winning streak uh, as a pro, uh, keeping him undefeated are all via finish as well too. So the guy's a finisher. Plain and simple, the guy likes to go out there and put you out. Doesn't have one win by submission, but it's pretty much all um, uh, all KOs. And especially the last one, probably one of the nastier KOs you'll see given how long Al Matavo was out. Now here against Jamie Pickett, he's fighting a guy that's a little bit longer, lengthier in range. We are seeing Tafan actually go down in weight now too, 
you know, he fought at uh, heavyweight in his second fight. He fought at 225 against William Knight in CFFC. He fought at 205 against Almatavo. And now he's coming in against Jamie Pickett as a 185er, uh, which should be really interesting to see if he's able to get down to that weight. So I would be uh, very hard-pressed to be telling people to jump on Tafan at this point in time. I would prefer to wait until the weigh-ins to see how he reacts to actually, you know, making it down to a... 185 pounds that's 18 pounds less than he was at the last weigh-in that he fought at so um yeah i like Tafan. uh i think he has some uh some power i think he has some potential too um he is 26 years old so he has a couple uh you know he has a couple years still to really flesh out the rest of his game um I, initially when he had fought and, and beat Matavo, I'm like, okay, this might be a guy that I'm going to look to fade in the future. But as I start to go through his fights, like I'm actually liking the kid more and more. He is a little bit more low output, but I think that his power makes up for that. As more often than not, when he lands on his opponents, they show visible signs of, of trauma. and <laughs> They show visible signs of damage. And that definitely uh, plays a part in the in the judges' decisions if it ever does reach the judges' scorecards, which again, Tafan has yet to do in his uh, seven-fight MMA career, four-fight pro MMA career. Um, Jamie Pickett, on the other hand, a little bit of a lengthier guy, a little bit of a bigger guy. I don't know why he gives me Khalil Round tree vibes but it is what it is currently he's on a two-fight winning streak his only losses his last two losses both came on the contender series where he got triangle choked by charles bird and then he got uh, unanimous decisioned by uh, punahali soriano uh, back in june of 2019 he goes out there he gets one more victory uh, in september of 2019 uh, via decision where he really took a, a grapple heavy approach to get his opponent down and, and do some work from there uh, and then the jonathan patty fight um you know we saw him have some good success in that first round nothing crazy and then he comes out and absolutely starts his patty in the second round uh with the beautiful combination that pretty much almost every fucking punch landed in that combination beautiful work there so he gets the finish i'm sure he uh you know you, you could see the emotion on his face too really letting it out especially having two losses in that uh in that um in that setting already in the contender series to so to finally go out there and get a victory and get a decisive victory was very very uh important to him so good for him to actually get that but now he's coming into the ufc and fighting a guy that's very very tough in in tafon now one of the flaws that i saw in jamie pickett's game is that he seems to have a bit of that tall man defense syndrome where he holds his chin a little bit too high especially when he's throwing combinations and for me it feels like tafon has a very nice uh high tight guard which allows him to counter very well too because he's able to actually like see through his guard and see what his opponent is throwing at him and i think that's where jamie pickett's going to get be in some tough trouble here i think jamie's best bet at actually winning this fight is keeping it at distance go out there and uh you know use his kicks try to stay out of the range of the power punching of tafan uh and, and kind of just pick him apart for for three rounds However, it does seem like he has a little bit of cardio issues, which could potentially catch up to him. And not to mention, he's going to have to eat a couple shots here from Tafon. And in my opinion, I don't think he's going to be able to eat them. The The shots that we see from Tafon are just absolutely insane. Like the guy throws with such heat, such power and such uh, speed that really catches his opponents off uh, off guard. And he throws in good combinations too. He's not just a, a one and done type of puncher which really impresses me as well when guys do focus on their power and kind of base their game plan around their power 
if they're not able to put together combinations, it gets very, very sketchy, especially if the fight does end up going to judges' scorecards. So mix in a couple of kicks that uh, Tafan has in, in heavy, heavy loads, um, and then obviously uh, very, very crisp hands as well too. I think Tafan could definitely be a problem for a lot of people. But the again, the, the thing here is Jamie Pickett does have some experience advantage here. This is going to be his uh, 15th fight, or sorry, 16th fight, pro MMA fight, whereas this is only going to be the fifth for um, Tafan. So he's almost tripled him up in experience, which could play a factor, but who knows. Uh, however, I still will go with Tafan. I think he's a pretty safe parlay piece as well, too. I wish I could give you guys a better insight in terms of the over-under as well. If it was two and a half, I'd probably play the two, under two and a half. It is at minus 250 at a couple of spots, but the under one and a half is about minus 120-ish. I don't know. I could feel it. I could see it kind of playing out a little bit longer with, uh, you know, Jamie being a little bit more uh, conservative. But once things start going and, and really start opening up, I could definitely see Tafon uh, landing perfectly on, on Jamie and kind of putting him out. So I'll go with Tafon inside the distance. A solid parlay piece as well, too. Um, but do keep in mind, that this is only his fifth MMA fight, uh, pro MMA fight, so he still has a lot of uh, uh, a lot of growing to do for sure. Uh, but yeah, I, was, I like what I see from him thus far. So once again, I'll go with Tafan to win this fight probably by first or second round KO. But uh, I truly want to see him showcase a more overall MMA game when he needs to. I'm not sure if this is the fight that he'll need to, but I think he has a solid chance to go out there and knock out Jamie Pickett. So once again, I'm going with Tafan and Chukwi to win by either first or second round KO. Eamon Zahabi versus Draco Rodriguez. We got minus 185 on the uh, Contender Series vet. Um, Draco Rodriguez and plus 160 on Eamon Zahabi. So let's start off with Zahabi. Obviously, most of you guys will recognize his name. He is the brother of TriStar head coach Faraz Sahabi. And I feel like that had a little bit to do with him being able to make it to the UFC with the resume that he had. So uh, he came into the UFC with a record of 6-0. and um, Very skeptical competition on the way in. Uh, I actually know his first ever opponent, Kyle Vivian, who was 0-5 going into that fight. He's actually ended his career at 0-8, but if you go through that guy's record, you'll notice other very familiar faces such as Jason Sago and also Sergio Pettis, who got a victory over this guy. But, uh, you know, a couple other very sketchy opponents on his record, and in he gets into the UFC uh, February of 2017. I believe that was the UFC Halifax card where he took on Reginaldo Vieira in a very, very close fight. Um, but uh, I, I did see a couple scorecards out there actually giving that fight to Vieira, so there's a potential for some hometown cooking there. But uh, yeah, not the type of performance you would, you would expect out of somebody that was as highly touted as Faraz Zahabi's brother. Uh, then he goes out there and loses two straight fights to Ricardo Hamos, or Ricardo Hamos, I should say, and uh, Vince Morales uh, via decision. Obviously, that play, that fight took place in Ottawa. Didn't get the hometown cooking there, but uh, he just didn't have the volume that uh, you would require to beat a guy like Vince Morales. Now, I'm not sure if it was like just him being a little bit uh, timid due to the the Ricardo Hamos uh, KO that he suffered back in November of 2017. He took close to, well, about a year and a half off and then came back for the Vince Morales fight and just did not throw that much. It seemed like Morales was in control of that fight from the beginning to the end. There just was no urgency on Zahabi's side. 
we know his style is more so focused around the striking realm, but if you do go through some of his uh, training videos and, and some of the stuff that he's been posting on social media, he's definitely been working that jiu-jitsu game as well too. He did attend a quintet-type uh, jiu-jitsu tournament over here in Ontario um, and did very well with his TriStar team. Um, you know, he's really trying to round out his game. He's still quite young too. Well, actually, wow. I don't know why the hell I thought he was much younger, but he is 33. Um, so I guess he is getting up there in age. I, I'm not sure why I had believed that he was a little bit younger than that. But uh, yeah, it's definitely, you know, kind of, he's running up against the clock at this point in time. And the fact that he's having so many, so much layoff in between all this time as well, it just doesn't really bode well for him. Now he's coming off another year and a half layoff. So if he was trying to get the rust off in that Vince Morales fight, He's going to have some more rest here against uh, Draco Rodriguez, who was very, very hungry to make a statement on the UFC scene. Um, yeah, Zahabi still needs to show a little bit more improvements on my end. Uh, being a striker, I feel like we need to see more from him. Uh, he does have good jiu-jitsu again, like I said, so if he wants to take it there, things could get very interesting. For a Draco Rodriguez, who you know also seems to like uh, the, the jiu-jitsu realm as well. I find it hilarious because I was trying to figure out a little bit more about Draco. Just through tape alone, it was very hard to really kind of figure out what kind of fighter he is. And there's actually a article out there where uh, the um, the president of King of King of the Cage, which is a company that which is the regional company that he he fought for numerous times before jumping over to the Contender series. Uh, but uh, there was a little bit of a disagreement in terms of letting him jump over to the UFC earlier. Uh, and one of the things that his uh, that the the promoter was quoted in saying was okay he's a good striker his wrestling is decent but his jiu-jitsu is, just needs help still which i find hilarious given that he has uh you know several uh submission victories on his record not to mention the one that he was able to secure in the contender series to fully put out mana martinez uh via triangle choke in that first round so um very, very interesting for the, the president to say something like that. But it seems like, you know, it, it's tough to really get my grip on what kind of fighter that Draco truly is. Like you see his fight against Tony Gravely, getting taken over, taken down time and time again, and then eventually finished in that fifth round. Not really too much to be ashamed about there because Tony Gravely is a legitimate opponent as well. Um, the Shane Moffitt fight, uh, you know, mainly seen that on the ground, eventually gets the arm bar there. And then the Mona Martinez fight, that's a fight that he chooses to take to the ground and then eventually gets a triangle choke. Um, the Elliot Kahn fight, that guy was 5'3", obviously at a huge uh, size disadvantage there. And then, um, you know, Draco Rodriguez really showed his uh, size and pressure there as he was able to take him down and just stay on top of him, back mount, full mount, back and forth in that position. And then eventually just ground and pounded to a finish. Probably could have stopped that fight much earlier too, but uh, he was happy to just continue to wail on Elliot there. Um, yeah, I'm still trying to get a, uh, an idea what kind of fighter he is. Uh, I feel like he's going to want to take Eamon down if that's kind of his route to victory. Uh, but we have seen some improvements or hope to see some improvements from Eamon's side there. Now, as a complete fighter, it seems like Eamon is the one that's a little bit a step ahead. But that is also taken into consideration that he's almost nine years older than the kid. But I feel like this is going to be more than skill for skill. This is going to be more about who's hungry to be in the UFC. And I feel like Draco, given everything that he's been through uh, to get to this point in time... He's going to be a little bit more hungry, not to mention he's not the one dealing with the huge layoff. Uh, Eamon's a hobby. 
you know, just had twins, I believe it was about two years ago, which is why he took that amount of time off. I'm not sure why he took out this much amount of time this time, uh, but it seems like he's very happy with being a father and, and Draco seems like a guy that wants to truly be in the UFC and really take that next step in making a, a name for himself. So um, personally, I'm staying away from this fight because I feel like uh, a f- true and full version and confident version of Eamon Zahabi shows up. It's going to be uh, a tough night for Draco. But again, Draco just seems like a kid with a, with some talent. But I truly need to see what we what we get out of him once he gets into the UFC now. So I think this is a great opponent or at least a great matchup for both guys to truly get their feet wet within the UFC again or for at least Draco for the first time. Uh, and then for Eamon to really just find his groove if he had ever found a groove in the UFC this is the fight to find it with so go out there beat the young up-and-comer and if he's not able to then it might be time to, to well he's probably going to get his pink slip let's be real he he's already on a two-fight losing streak obviously the last one being to Vince Morales who hasn't really been doing too well on the UFC either so you got to think that if he loses this fight it's probably uh, time to walk for uh, Eamon Zahabi but I'll go with Draco. This fight's going to be a complete pass for me, but I will go with Draco to win this fight via decision, maybe even a submission later in the fight. But uh, yeah, I, I just can't get the, the best feel for Draco here, but I will go with him. Uh, again, this fight is a complete pass. I just don't know what to expect from Eamon, who seems to be the, the big variable here as well too. So once again, I'll go with Draco Rodriguez to win this fight via decision. Duran Wynn versus Antonio Ahoyo. We got minus 150 on Ahoyo and plus 130 on Duran Win. Let's start off with Antonio Ahoyo, who's had a bad string of luck when it comes to tracking down a fight during this COVID era. He made his UFC debut against Andre Munoz back in November of 2019, where he lost a decision, uh, where Andre Munoz was able to uh, implement his jiu-jitsu to a solid state and was able to you know, get uh, Ahoyo done. Uh, early and often enough to be able to get the judges' scorecards there. Um, you know, the the cardio of Antonio Hoyo looked a little bit sketchy at that time. He did end the fight on his feet with Munoz on his back. Um, you know, his game is mainly uh, centered around a striking heavy attack. He has great leg kicks. He has very, very powerful leg kicks. And he's a very big guy for this division. And uh, we'll definitely see, uh, you know, he, he's definitely on the bigger side of this uh, middleweight division where Duran Wynn is more so on the on the way smaller side. We're talking about a 6-3 Antonio Ahoyo against a 5-6 Duran Wynn. So the, the, the size difference is going to be absolutely insane. It's probably going to look something similar to Mark Hunt against uh, Stefan Struve, honestly. Um, but, uh, you know, last time Duran Wynn was in the cage, he did beat... Um, or sorry, he lost to Gerald Mershard. And the reason I bring that fight up specifically is because Gerald Mershard was one of the bigger guys that Duran Wynn has faced to this date. And uh, uh, Gerald Mershard is 6-1. So we have two more inches that Antonio Ahoyo is going to have here. Um, but I do believe that uh, Mershard had a slightly longer reach uh, advantage than Antonio Ahoyo is going to have here. But we know it's going to be extremely exaggerated given the height difference here between Ahoyo and, uh, and Wynn. So it is pretty much a striker versus grappler type of matchup. I think the approach that we saw from Duran Wynn in his Darren Stewart fight and his Gerald Mearshart fights are completely polar opposites in terms of what their opponent had brought to the table, which is why he switched up his game plan the way that he did. Like the Darren Stewart fight, he was way more uh, desperate to get the fight to the ground because how good Darren Stewart is on the feed, what kind of power that he packs. And, uh, you know, we still saw Darren Stewart get taken down a couple times, but was able to get back to his feet and 
do enough damage to kind of outweigh the control time that Duran Wynn was able to accrue. The Gerald Mearshar fight, we saw Wynn way more uh, willing to engage in the striking realm as he believed that he had the slight advantage there in terms of size, or not size, but uh, uh, power and speed. And that was true. He definitely hit Gerald Mearshar with a couple of big strikes in that fight. But it seemed like his cardio started to fail him down the stretch where, uh, you know, Gerald Mearshar was able to crack him with a beautiful shot and then just started winging on him and eventually got him in a rear naked choke. Now, the choke wasn't even under the chin, so that leads you to believe that one is a little bit of, a bit of exhaustion, and two, we didn't even really see Deron Wynn try to attack the hands and try to break the lock because he kind of just, it seemed like he gave up. It seemed like uh, his his cardio was definitely compromised at that point in time, and mixing the fact that he was rocked, I'm sure it was a very tough situation to get out of, especially with a big guy like Gerald Mearshart on you, uh, given that you're already at such a huge size disadvantage. Now, here with the Hoyo, you're getting a guy who, you know, much better striker than he is grappler. Um, I think he's going to, you know, he looks like he's nice and agile earlier in his fights, but once they go a little bit longer, that's where he starts to get stretched and, and the cardio starts to come into into play. Now, I'm not sure where what we'll see, whether we'll see Duran Wynn continuously uh, complete takedowns and ride out the top position, or Duran Wynn struggle to get a massive man to the ground over and over again. I think Duran Wynn's best chance here is hoping that he can, uh, you know, really exhaust Antonio Hoyo on the ground in that first and second round so that the third round is not as bad for him to have to, you know, uh, get his shit together with. Um, personally, I'm still leading a Hoyo here as I feel like his body work, his, his body kicks, um, just sucking the, the wind of Duran Wynn is going to be a little bit easier given the range and size that he's at and his striking acumen that he currently has. Um, Duran Wynn's going to struggle to keep Ohio down, in my opinion. I think we saw Munoz have a little bit more success as obviously he's just as big as uh, Hoyo to begin with and he has solid jiu-jitsu as well too whereas Duran Wynn is more so just a wrestling approach and I feel like Ohio would do a really good job of getting back to his feet it's going to be really really tough in my opinion for Duran Wynn to hold Ohio down for as long as he is without having to deal with all the striking all the damage that Ohio is going to be able to accrue on the feet so the lean here is Antonio Hoyo. Um, the cardio is a little bit of an issue, though. It, both guys obviously have that issue. Um, and no, more often than not, I like to go with the grappler. But in this instance, it's just too hard to pick Duran Wynn, who just hasn't really shown the greatest of, of talent um, You know, during his UFC run. I believe he accrued... Yeah, he had one win against Eric Spicy in a, in a banger of a fight, actually. That was a crazy fight. And he's uh, managed to go on a two-fight skid now. Um yeah, I like I like Ohio here. I think he can either get it done late if his cardio holds up, or at least uh, come away with a decision victory. But I think it's going to look almost comical how different these guys are in size. So once again, I'll go with uh, Antonio Ohio to win this fight via decision. Carl Roberson versus Dolce Lungiambula. We got minus 275 for Carl Roberson and plus 235 for Dolce champion Lungiambula, I guess. We don't need to call him champion anymore since he's in the UFC and obviously is not the champion right now. So let's start off with Dalcha. Um, coming off a loss to Magomed Ankalaev, won his UFC debut against Daquan Townsend, where he uh, finished him in the third round. Uh, conversely, gets finished by Magomed Ankalaev in the third round. So um, 
we we give both sides of the coin there for Delja. So going over his tape, he seems like a, a guy that really does rely on his pressure. Uh, not really his pressure, sorry, his uh, his one punch knockout power, which is in my opinion a little bit over um, over exaggerated. I don't really think he has crazy knockout power. He has good power, but not like like Francis Ngannou type power. That's kind of what I was expecting from him uh, when he first came into the UFC. And yeah, he was able to put out Daquan Townsend. But uh, I was expecting him to be one of those guys that like, you know, as soon as he rushes forward and lands one good enough shot, that it would be enough to put you out. But yeah, he could still probably do that. But we're just seeing it. And it's not really paying off for him to to the best of his abilities. Now, my change here with Carl Robeson, who would probably be, wouldn't mind engaging him in that type of fight. Uh, but obviously, we know that Carl is a much more diverse uh, striker, has way more variety of strikes, um, you know, his light kicks, even as takedowns too, if he doesn't want to take this fight to the ground. I would have to get this, give the slight uh, ground advantage to Carl Roberson here, as I feel like Dautzalungiambula, when he does take his opponents down, he has a couple good tosses, a couple good trips, but doesn't do the craziest amount of damage from on top. He did finish Stuart Austin from a, a bit of ground and pound elbows uh, in uh, in the second round there. But that first round against Stuart, once he was on the ground and Stuart had full mount and was raining down shots on him, uh, you know, a lot of judges probably would have stopped that fight or a lot of referees probably would have stopped that fight. Um, maybe we got a little bit of favoritism for Dalcha considering, um, you know, he was fighting in South Africa and he seemed to be a big star down there. Um so uh, maybe that's why they didn't stop it for uh, Stewart at that time. And then conversely, they stop it for Dolce in a similar situation. If anything, I think that Dolce was probably getting beat up worse by Stuart Austin near that end of that first round compared to what Dolce was doing to Stewart in that second round when he got the finish. But, um, you know, things do get hairy for him when he's the one getting taken down. He doesn't really have much off of his back. Um, I think if Crawl gets him in that position, it might be a little bit difficult for Dolce to get up or even just have any type of offense off of his back. Um, and the further this fight goes, I think the, the more success that will see Carl Roberson have here now when I saw the line I'm like okay this is a little bit too wide minus 275 for Carl Roberson we could potentially see a knockout here but uh the over under is actually at one and a half and I'm very very happy for that I kind of thought that they would make it at two and a half but with this at one and a half I do like the over here it's minus 125 currently we'll see what it is once it starts to open up on more websites Ooh, Pinnacle has a minus 111. I'm going to have to see what those uh, what those limits are right now because I don't think that's a bad spot. But uh, yeah, this is... Uh, I think that the over one and a half is really good here. Um, you know, Dalja is quite... Um, low output really only goes for that kill shot type of strike um one of my boys uh newsome shout out to newsome mma but he kind of con uh compared this to a uh, gabriel benitez and uh justin jane's fight and i i kind of said to him in in response i'm like that's a good point but i think that delta has a better chance of knocking out carl than uh we had jane's knocking out benitez but the more i run the tape man i i i'm kind of starting to think that i over exaggerated the amount of punching power that delta actually he had so um he seems to have a very limited game plan if he's not able to get his opponents down i think he gets very difficult for him i'd be surprised if he got carl down uh and even kept him down for a longer period of time like we've seen some good work off of carl's back to reverse positions get out of submissions and even do some solid work from on top himself if he is able to get on top of his opponents so uh, i'm liking the progression that we're seeing from roberson i'd like to write off that last fight against marvin vittori 
as I believe that was a very bad matchup for him. But here against Delta, I think that he could cruise. But minus 275 is a little bit too much for me. With that said, I think this is going to be a slower-paced fight, maybe a lot of clinching, possibly either guy going for a takedown here. I, I think if anybody would be going for a takedown, it might be Roberson, uh, just to get it down and, and kind of like... Uh, um, suck out the power of Dalja just in case he is, uh, you know, kind of uh, concerned about that. But also, let's not forget the the size disadvantage that Dalja is pretty much at uh, in every single fight of his. So he's five eight. Uh, with the 76-inch reach. Carl Robeson is 6'1", with a 74-inch reach. So, uh, Dalcho is definitely a smaller, uh, more dense dude. The guy's pretty thick, I would say that. But Robeson will definitely have the, the size advantage here. That's a solid size advantage. Let's not overlook that. That's over like 4 or 5 inches that we're talking about. So, Carl should probably do a good job of kind of sticking and moving from the outside, landing the shots that he needs to. Like, I, I kind of wish that Roberson was closer to like minus 150, minus 160, as I believe that's a, a line that I'd be more interested in. He opened at minus 245 and slowly getting steamed up higher and higher. So maybe a p possible parlay piece. I'm not 100% sure, but the spot that I do like the most, I think, is the over one and a half, minus 125. My opinion is a great line. Anything over minus or anything better than minus one forty, minus one fifty, I say, is a solid line on that over. I do think um, not, if there is a finish, it will probably be later. And if there is a finish, I see it coming from Carl probably pulling off a submission. So I would love to see what the submission prop on uh, Carl Oberson is here, as I think that uh, that might be a sneaky prop. So uh, yeah, I could potentially plug that on the the propping you up stream that me and Cody do on Wednesdays uh, or sorry on Thursdays um, but yeah I think that might be a sneaky good spot so yeah I got Carl Robeson here probably by late second round or third round submission um, or even TKO ground and pound whatever it is but I think he can outlast Dalja here do some solid work on the feet eventually take this to the ground and really start to take over from there but the over one and a half is definitely the most intriguing spot in my opinion here so once again I'll go with Carl Robeson by second or third round finish Sajara Eubanks versus Pani Kianzad. We got minus 155 on Sarge and plus 135 on Kianzad. Let's actually start off with Star Sarge, who's coming off a loss to Ketlin Vieira last time around at UFC 253 back in September. And uh, just under three months later, we see her come back and fight uh, another solid opponent in Pani Kianzad here. Now, Sajara is getting a little bit comfortable at this 135-pound range after she did miss weight a couple times at 125 pounds. So she is always, more often than not, going to be the smaller woman when she steps inside the cage. Kaylin Vera had about a four-inch height advantage on her, and now Piani Kianzad is going about a, is going to have about a three-inch uh, height advantage on her. So she'll look a little bit shorter uh, than you know if she was fighting anybody around her size. Now, obviously, I'll give her a lot of credit for that Julia Avila win. That was a fight where I had uh, heavy Avila money. Um, you know, I, I thought she was very live there. I thought she would be able to get the victory. You know, kind of just bull rush Sajara, maybe take her down and do some good work from on top. However, she was not able to do so. Uh, and uh, Sajar did a good job of kind of just controlling her on the ground, getting her down and just doing some good work from on top. And the Caitlin Vieira fight, I think we saw the size come into play as well as the striking, uh, you know, advantage of Caitlin Vieira, who just throws much harder. Uh, even when she got Sajar down, she did some good work from on top too. Uh, but I think it was a combination, her kicks and, uh, you know, her willingness to continuously move forward against Sajar Eubanks. 
Now we can kind of throw out the narrative of Sajara being a bad uh, or having a bad gas tank. I feel like uh, that's a drum that's been beat on a lot for her last couple of fights, especially when people are breaking down her fights. But now she's gone to a decision, you know, four straight times as of late five, six, seven, eight, eight straight times, uh, including her exhibition bout against Roxanne Modafari. She's gone to a decision and she's put uh, together a what, five and three record in that amount of time. Now it all depends on her opponents. I mean, I thought it was going to be, okay, if Ketlin's out going out there and kind of putting on a pace with her and and really outstriking her, maybe we'll see Sajara start to gas in the, those later rounds. However, she didn't. She was still in the fight. However, uh, Ketlin was still way more efficient on the feet, landing the better strikes and just getting a better overall uh, take from the judges there. Now here with Penny, Penny seems like she'd be able to kind of implement a similar type of game plan to, to Ketlin Vieira. However, I'm not sure if that's actually going to be 100% effective here. Uh, the, the ground game of Sajara kind of worries me here. As we did see, Betch have some solid uh, success when she did get uh, Penny down in their fight. However, I think that Sajara does have better jujitsu, and she might be able to do a better job of keep, keeping Penny down. Now when this fight's on the feet though, I feel like the confidence and, and experience of Penny Kianza with her striking is going to pay dividends here. Sajara, mainly a, a jiu-jitsu player who has shown improvements in her striking game, which is why she was able to get that victory over Sarah Morass and did some decent work on the feet against Julia Villo too. But uh, when, a, when an opponent does have a uh, an advantage in that striking realm, we do see Sarge tr start to struggle a little bit. And I think that's what we saw in the Ketlin Vieira fight. And I feel like that's what we're going to see in this Panic Yanza fight as well. Now, it's all pertinent on whether Pani will be able to keep this fight on the feet because I don't think that we'll see Sajara willingly go out there and strike for 50 minutes against Pani. Pani, you know, again, she's going to have a little bit of the range. She has a great kicking game. Her strikes from distance are very uh, effective as well. So I think that she definitely has the advantage there. Um, I'm kind of surprised to see Pani at dog odds, but for some reason, I'm not super compelled to actually go out there and put the money on her. I do think she wins, but again, the grappling does concern me a little bit. If Sarge is able to get her down and do some good work from on top, it could get very, very hairy for anybody that has money on Pan either. All she needs is two rounds, and she's able to do it against Julia Avila, who, in my opinion, may be a better overall fighter than Patty, but we still need to see uh, Avila's game kind of flesh out as she's really just gone out there and just starched most of her opponents in the first round. Now with Pani, uh, she's a little bit more experienced, has a couple of decision victories under her belt, and again, much more striking-based than Sajara is, so we'll see her a little bit more comfortable there. How the size difference is going to play into advantage for Pani, I think her kicks will, will be more effective, but also her ability to maintain the distance, which I think is going to be crucial here in her being able to keep this fight on the feet. I... I kind of trust Panny to be able to keep the distance and keep the range, uh, but I just have a funny feeling about this fight. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but I still will side with the dog here. I think Panny will go out there and outstrike uh, Sajara for about two rounds, um, but things will definitely get very interesting if this fight does hit the ground with Sajara in top position. So I'll go with Panny to win this fight via decision, but uh, not with the utmost confidence here. Alex Morono versus Anthony Pettis. We got minus 210 on Showtime and plus 175 on the great white Alex Morono. Let's start off with Morono, who's coming off a victory over Reese McKee uh, just under a month ago, uh, which is interesting that he's taken the fight so quickly. Uh, he didn't seem to take too much damage against Reese McKee. Uh, that was a pretty good fight, though, I will say. Um, in terms of strikes that were landed by McKee, it was 124. Um, 
but yeah, Morona didn't really seem like he was wearing it all that much compared to what McKee looked like after the fights. But we know uh, Morona's style is for the most part. Like, the guy likes to move forward, throw shots. Um, he throws a high amount of output when he does go a full three rounds with his opponents. Just for an example, um, uh, when he fought uh, James Muntasri, he uh, uh, landed 111 strikes. When he fought Kate Nakamura, he threw 38, so he had 11 more than his opponent. Um, another decision, the Jordan Meehan and Alex Morona fight was an interesting one. Very, very low volume with uh, Meehan getting a ton of the takedowns. Uh, but the unanimous decision victory over Song Kanan, he outstruck him by 37 strikes, uh, 98 to 61. Um, another decision victory, and his last two decision victories over Max Griffin, he outstruck him 81 to 75. And then obviously the Reese McKee fight, he outstruck him 176 to 124 and that's an interesting one because going into that fight everybody thought the narrative was that you know uh mckee is going to have the better of the stand-up but it eventually came down to morona having more of the output and then obviously finally pulling some takedowns out of his ass not a lot of people thought that he was going to be going for takedowns and uh, i believe that that was probably his best path to victory is if he did get this fight to the ground he could start to implement his jujitsu. but we didn't really see all that much of it we saw it in the first, second round uh it wasn't you know he didn't hold him down for that long at all but then in the third round he managed to get that uh, takedown after that weird uh missing mouth guard scenario that went down um but yeah right after that they they restarted the fight and morona gets him down pretty much you know probably not the greatest shots you've ever seen out there but he still gets a takedown and uh rides out that top position for the last like minute and a half to two minutes so um you know morono is showing a little bit of progression in his career uh showing a little bit more versatility at this point in time uh his striking could still use a little bit of work like he's a little bit slower on the feet um you know he does throw with output which is very you know reassuring if you're a morono backer uh, but I think that, you know, something that he doesn't really tout that often that he should is his black belt. Like the guy has, um, does he have any submission? He has a guillotine choke over Joshua Berkman and that is it. No other submission victories in the UFC. So he needs to start using that, especially in this fight against Pettis. Like Pettis is a black belt himself as well. But I think that the, if Morono gets top pressure, he should be able to like at least land some good shots and kind of pressure Pettis. Now we know what Pettis's game has been for the last little while, um, you know, always getting backed up more often than not and then he usually succumbs to pressure from his opponents you know the perfect fighters that go out there and, they, and are able to pressure him successfully and get the victories max holloway dustin poirier tony ferguson nate diaz diego fajera now the interesting thing about that last opponent is diego fajera also trains at fortis mma which is where alex morono now sets up his camp he splits time between his own gym and then obviously spends majority of the time at fortis and you're seeing you know pictures of him coming out of in, uh you know out of the fortis camp training with high level guys which should really help him prepare for this fight against uh pettis now Morona seems to have that type of style that could beat a guy like Pettis, which is high volume, high output, and moving forward more often than not. And I feel like if he's able to take chunks from that Diego Fajera fight, um, at least that game plan that Save Sayud was able to implement there, he should be able to be successful here against Pettis. You know, Morona did get put out by Chaos Williams uh, two fights ago. So that's a little bit of a concern. But outside of that, you know, Pettis hasn't really... You know, last time he knocked somebody out was Wonderboy Thompson. That you know, that one was a, a weird one. Um, the Superman punch off the cage, very, very weird. And then before that, he hadn't knocked anybody out since 
Ooh, Donald Cerrone at UFC on Fox 6 where he hit him with the body kick. That was back in January of 2013. So we're talking close to eight years ago now was the last time besides that Wonderboy uh, Thompson knockout. So my, my concern here with Morono is... Like I said, he's going to be slower on the feet, which means that Pettis will probably have some success with landing some good shots on him, and he might be able to knock him out too. But I think that if Morono can continue that forward pressure, continue that output, continue to put it on Anthony Pettis, he could potentially just take over this fight with just his pressure alone. Now, I think he needs to attack the takedowns and uh, you know initiate the clinch and the grappling because that's a very important part of beating Anthony Pettis is kind of just like pushing him up against the cage and roughing him up. And I feel like Morono could be successful in doing something like that. Now, now we've seen in the past when you know guys lazily shoot in on Pettis, he's able to lock up a guillotine choke and get a finish that way. So that's something that Morona's gonna have to worry about here. But Morona is a solid black belt himself too, so I hope that he'll be able to uh, you know fight out of those chokes if that's something that he finds himself in. My issue here, though, is, again, that the, the stand-up, there's a discrepancy in the speed and the technique advantage for Anthony Pettis. And, uh, you know, Pettis has landed some good shots while on the back foot, but for the majority of it, when he is on the back foot, he gets tired a little bit quicker. It's harder to land those shots. Um, and Morona will have more success in terms of walking forward and landing the shots and kind of push, putting the pressure on Pettis. Um, I was kind of bouncing the idea back and forth in terms of who I would be picking here to win, but it's kind of hard to overlook the line that we're getting on Alex Morono here who has shown in the past that he has the type of game plan and, and abilities to beat a guy like Pettis at this point in his career. You know, it's Pettis just has not looked that good. The Cerrone fight was, you know, a toss-up. A lot of people had it for uh, Cerrone as well too. And we've seen guys that just, if they if they accept the fact that they can walk forward, eat a couple shots from Pettis, but continuously put it on uh, their, their own, uh, they should be successful. Now, like, look, let's look at the times that Pettis has lost. He's getting outstruck. He is absolutely getting outstruck here. The Nate Diaz fight, 114 to 69. The Diego Fajera fight, he gets outstruck by three, but gets choked out in the second round, early second round. The Tony Ferguson fight, 114 to 45. Um, even the Wonderboy Thompson fight before uh, Thompson got knocked out, um, outstruck him by 15 strikes, 47 to 32. The, the last Cowboy fight was very, very close. Pettison outstruck him by, by one strike, but Dustin Poirier outstrikes him 53 to 34. Uh, he outstrikes Jim Miller. That obviously makes a lot of sense. Max Holloway outstrikes him by 94, 94 to 53. Uh, Charles Oliveira loses that fight. Edson Barboza, 73 to 48. Eddie Alvarez. That's the one fight actually where where Pettis actually did outstrike uh, uh, Eddie Alvarez, but did lose that fight. And then the RDA fight, obviously, that's the fight that uh, Pettis lost his belt. He gets outstruck by, uh, what is that, six, 36 strikes. So... I like what I'm seeing statistically for Alex Morono in terms of his output when fights do go the full 15 minutes. And if he can avoid getting knocked out here, I think he could win a decision by just staying on the staying on the gas, moving forward, uh, attacking takedowns, clinching up Pettis, kind of taking away the advantage of of Pettis, which was probably the speed and the the the, the, the technical advantage in terms of throwing better strikes. Um, yeah, I feel like with safe side in his corner, knowing what they know from the Diego Fajeda fight, and I'm not saying that Alex Morono is a Diego Fajeda here, and he's not going to be able to execute that game plan just as perfectly as Fajeda did, but he should give a good damn crack at it. And uh, at that plus 185 range that he's currently at, that's not that's not a bad spot here to take a shot on uh, Alex Morono. I could see that line going up to plus 200 as well because you know people still have a hard on for Anthony Pettis, so I wouldn't mind just waiting it out a little bit and seeing if we get a better line there uh there are some other interesting dogs on this card 
So maybe not forcing a, a play on Morona here is, is isn't the worst thing. But uh, we'll we'll see what's up as the fight week moves on and uh, how the lines shake out. But if Morona hits plus two hundred, I think that's got to be a little bit of a bet there. You got you got to pull the trigger at that point in time. You got to figure that there's some solid value on Morona at that price. So I'm going to stick back. I'm going to sit back and just watch how this line uh, shakes out. But my play is going to be Morona, and I'm going to I'm going to take him to win by decision. Um, potentially could sub Pettis, um, but I feel like Pettis uh, has enough, um, still has enough in the tank to be able to stay out of the uh, submissions that Morona throws up there. So once again, I'll go with Morona to win this fight via decision. Tyler Santos versus Jillian Robertson, and we got pretty much a pick'em line here. Minus 105, slight underdog, even money underdog is Tyler Santos, and minus 115, Jillian Robertson. No other lines are currently out. I am recording this on December 9th, which is the Wednesday before fight week. Um, you guys know me. I like to get my stuff out nice and early, so if you're on the Patreon, you're already seeing this. If you're not on the Patreon, you're watching this from the future. But either way... Um, this is an interesting fight. So Tyler Santos was actually supposed to fight Montana De La Rosa. Uh, I believe it was last week on December 5th. So yeah, she, uh, about four days ago, she was supposed to fight uh, ta- uh, Montana De La Rosa. De La Rosa, I believe, test positive for COVID, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, eventually, oh, one of her cornermen tested positive for COVID. So that fight had to get pulled. And then with Jillian Robertson, she was scheduled to fight Andrea Lee. Uh this weekend uh sorry on the on the 12th uh yeah at ufc 256 unfortunately andrea lee breaks her nose and uh luckily for both women though jillian robertson and tyler santos it works out in terms of their timing so they get to get rebooked and fight each other now and you know it's probably not the most uh it's not the best in terms of being able like switching up opponents here but i think if for tyler santos's side it's a little bit more beneficial because she was already fighting a girl that probably was going to come with the grapple heavy game plan the thing with uh, jillian robertson though is i don't think her game plans normally depend on what her opponent does well it's normally what she wants to do and how she's going to go about imposing her will on her opponents now i think she would have been way more successful against andrea lee in terms of dragging this fight to the ground and and you know either pulling off a submission or or some ground and pound or whatever it is but uh here with santos i think she's going to have a little bit more difficult over the of a time now if you guys go back and listen to my breakdown of tyler santos and montana de la rosa you guys saw that i was a little bit more uh in the boat of thinking that de la rosa was going to be be able to pull off the upset you know drag the fight to the ground with her superior superior wrestling and that's where i think that she had the edge and i think i still think that de la rosa has one of the better uh wrestling acumens in the division uh even you know even though that uh, Jalen Robertson she likes to go for the takedown often but I don't think her wrestling game is as uh on point as De La Rosa's uh again De La Rosa had the size as well um that that's another thing that she had the strength Jalen Robertson I gotta believe is getting better and better on a fight to fight basis stronger and stronger as well too that's something that's key she's 5'5 with a 63 inch reach whereas Tyler Santos is 5'6 with a 68-inch reach. So she's going to be slightly taller than her here. Um, sometimes that does help out the grappler after they're shorter one. You know, you know, you guys have heard me a couple times say in the past that uh, a fighter that is shorter usually is better at 
completing takedowns because their hips are lower to the ground. Whoever is able to get their hips kind of close or lower to the ground during a takedown attempt or one of those scenarios usually is the one is in success is successful in either uh, you know stuffing the takedown or completing the takedown. So she has that running for her in Jillian Robertson's side here, but I, I still feel like she's going to struggle to get Tyler down here. Um, and then the longer this fight's on the feet, the more in trouble that she's going to be. You see in that first round with Jillian Robertson and Pauliana Battaglio, when uh, Robertson's not able to get her down earlier in the round, um, she she kind of struggles. Like uh, her her striking game really isn't there. It's a couple leg kicks, calf kicks, um, and then kind of just fainting the jab out there to just throw something out there. But her end game is to get the fight to the ground, and every single fighter knows about it. And I'm sure that Tyler Santos is definitely going to be aware of that as well. So I expect... Uh, Robertson to have some issues at first taking Santos down it might be just as hard later in the fights too but I think that uh, her her dedication to sticking to her game plan and getting the fight to the ground is definitely beneficial here for Jillian Robertson now I'm picking Jillian to win this fight I think she'll get this fight to the ground I think she could either pull off a submission or a ground and pound finish she's a, a finisher type of fighter like she goes out there and tries to get the finish now the Botelho fight is an interesting one because Botelho seemed to seem to be okay with just fighting off of her back when when fighters are working their way back to their feet or trying to create those openings so they can get back to their feet, that's when Jillian Robertson is able to like establish a, a more dominant position or sink in a choke or or go to the back or whatever it is. That's where she's able to get her finishes. Not if not when a fighter is just content with just taking shots from on top and not really working to get back to their feet. So I think that's where the the Botelho finish didn't transpire for Jillian Robertson. Here with Santos, I feel like she would try to work back to her feet a little bit more. I don't think she would be as comfortable off of her back, knowing that she's losing the fight too. So I think she would create some openings if Robertson does get this fight to the ground. So with that said, the, the spot that I always look for in Jillian Robertson fights are uh, the under two and a half. Now, I'm hoping that they'll set it at two and a half. You know, nothing really leads me to believe that it will be set at one and a half. So I'll go with two and a half here. And it, if that's the case, we'll probably get a little bit of plus money on it as well. And again, if that's the case, that's the spot that I'm going to be looking for, for here. Because if Jillian is not able to get the fight to the ground, I think she's going to be in some deep trouble on the feet in Santos, who is a much better striker, much more crisp with her hands, and she could definitely make Robertson pay on the on the feet. So I do like the under 2.5. I'm, I'm waiting to see what the line is. Um, obviously, you guys can hear my thoughts in a better frame of mind having more odds available to me when you guys watch my stream on thursday with cody and then on friday with the rest of the odds crew uh but the under two and a half it's up if it's at plus money that's a spot that i'll more than likely be taking a shot on here as i believe that both women have finishing abilities but it's truly the the ingredient that jillian robertson brings to the game that allows for these finishes to transpire so i, I do love robertson uh, not sure if I'll actually pick her to win here, or sorry, bet her. I, I am predicting her to win. I think she will be successful in kind of accumulating cage control and getting the fight to the ground and and looking for those those positions. Um, I think one of the last breakdowns that I had for Jillian Robertson, I kind of just uh, put out uh, a snippet of something that she says, which is um, she 
mo most grapplers are position over submission. She's more of a submission over position type of girl. And that's the kind of girl that I like. I want to call her a woman. Sorry, that, that's a little bit disrespectful to call her a girl. But uh, that's that's the type of a woman that I like in terms of uh, a fighter. Just going out there and going for the finish. And that's what Jillian Robertson's all about. She wants to collect those performance of the night bonuses or those fight of the night bonuses. And I think this is a perfect dance partner for her to collect one of those. So uh, I'm taking Robertson. I think she wins either by submission or TKO on the ground. Uh, but I, I love her style. Uh, but I, I will admit it. The longer this fight stays on the feet, the the harder it's going to be for her to uh, pull off a victory here. So once again, I'll go with Jillian Robertson uh, to to get the win. Um, she may struggle with the takedown, man. That's my only concern here. She she could potentially struggle with the takedown. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I still think the the way that she she initiates offense really uh, leaves her defense kind of lacking. Uh, which is where I think Santos could take advantage and potentially finish her as well. So that's why I like the under two and a half, but I still will go with Jillian. I'm going to go with the grappler here, and I think she gets it done probably first or second round. Uh, so once again, I'll go with Jillian Robertson via TKO or submission. Marcin Tybura versus Greg Hardy. We got minus 120 on Greg Hardy and plus 100 on Marcin Tybura. Let's start off with Tybura, um, who's 20 and 6, coming off a three fight winning streak where he has victories over Sergei Spivak, Maxime Grishin, and uh, Ben Rothwell. Beat them all via decision, showing an all around MMA game where he was able to mix in his striking and his grappling very effectively to the point of getting a unanimous decision victory all in all three fights. Uh, before that, he was on a two fight losing streak, getting knocked out by both Shamil Abdurahimov and Augusto Sakai. Uh, both guys not really known for finishers, so it was interesting to see Tybura go out there and get starched, especially so quickly by a guy like Augusto Sakai. Um, we've seen a bit of an evolution from Tybura's game compared to what he just used to do. He used to, you know, he used to like to strike more often and kind of just stay on the feet, kind of pick his opponents apart, and then just kind of just keep it in that realm. But more often, more recently, we've been seeing him, uh, you know, willing to exchange with some guys, uh, you know, be kind of more defensively sound, and then mixing in the takedowns when he feels like it's necessary, and when he feels like it's at a, uh, at a point where he actually can take advantage of it. So uh, I'm liking what we're seeing recently from him. You know, it's not the most... Uh, it's not the most reassuring when you see he has three knockout losses within the last two and a half to three years. Obviously, to Derek Lewis, you can't really blame him for that one. That was another kind of classic Derek Lewis fight where Tybor is having a lot of success in the first two and a half rounds. And then, uh, you know, just over that two and a half round mark, uh, Derek Lewis lands a big bomb and, and puts him out. The the Shamil Abdurahimov fight and the Augusto Sakai a little bit more different. Uh, Augusto kind of just starches him in that first round, first minute even. And then in that second, uh, the Shamil one, he, he goes out there and gets knocked down in the second. Um, I, I'm a little bit, not a little bit, I'm, I'm quite impressed though, what we saw in that Ben Rothwell fight, because that's a fight where I actually bet Ben Rothwell. And I thought that was a solid spot because one, I thought he had the knockout power to go out there and put away uh, Tybor if that's what he needed to do. And two, I thought if it did get into a, a grappling exchange, I did not think that we'd see Tybor actually complete uh, a takedown here on Ben. And he did exactly that and did a lot of damage from on top too. So he's really rounding out his game. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, he had initially spent time over there at Jackson's camp. Now he's back doing his own thing uh, in Poland, I believe. I do want to just take a quick peek at his uh, IG to see where he's at been, where he's been as of late. As it seems, that's uh, what he likes to, you know, he he likes to kick it in uh, in Poland. Uh, what's what's this that he has? Ankos MMA, which I believe is his gym over there in Poland. Probably not his, but 
you guys know what the hell I mean. Um, but yeah, he's doing good work. Um, he's in Vegas too, it seems. He's doing solid work in Vegas as well. Got a couple of good training partners with him. If, if, if I'm not mistaken, oh, that guy looked like Ricky, Ricky, blah, Ricky Lundell for a second, but it wasn't him. But uh, yeah, no, I, personally, I like what we've been seeing from Tybura. Um, he's a great all-around competitor, and that's the kind of test that we need to see up here against Greg Hardy, who's still showing signs of greenness, uh, even though he has a, a handful of victories within the UFC now. So uh, he's on a two-fight winning streak over Jorgen DeCastro and Maurice Green. Uh, but we, what we've been seeing from him since his Ben Sassoli fight is a guy that's a little bit more pro uh uh, taking a more cautious approach, uh, knowing that his gas tank probably isn't the greatest, but he still wants to go out there and kind of pick you apart from the outside, use his movement, use his explosiveness and his range to kind of just pick guys apart and not really go after the kill unless he really needs to. Now, the Volkov fight, obviously, he was completely outgunned there. You know, it's very tough for a guy who is only entering his seventh MMA fight to go up against a guy who is entering his 38th MMA fight, uh, especially at a high level that Volkov is already at. And then we got this uh, DeCastro fight where, you know, DeCastro just seemed gun shy. He had a couple good leg kicks in the beginning. Apparently, he trashed his foot, which is why he didn't really throw too much in the second and third round. And then against Maurice Green, uh, we saw a, a, a side of of hardy that we haven't really seen before which is you know a guy that kind of takes somebody down and tries to hold that top position and it seemed from him trying to hold that top position that it was very difficult for him to do so and it expended a lot of his gas tank because in that second round he just did not look that good in terms of what his cardio looked like um obviously he was able to get, able to go out there get the finish over Marie's screen kind of knocking him, in, him down with a jab and then following up with some good ground and pound um you know, Green was still moving, he was still rolling, but I still think it was a pretty good uh, um, stoppage there. I believe Herb was the ref in that fight as well, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, it was good, but but after the, the fight had gotten stopped, you could absolutely see how gassed he was. Like, he was really sucking wind, and I wonder how that would have went if it actually completed the full 15 minutes, because I think that we would have saw we would have seen Green actually uh, kind of take over a little bit with uh, you know a little bit more volume and being able to be a little bit more mobile and having the better gas tank at least compared to uh, uh, what we saw from Greg Hardy at that time. Now him going up against a guy like Marcin Tabura though, uh, I think if he, his gas tank gets challenged, he's going to be in for a lot of trouble here you know this is the most experienced guy outside of Volkov that he's fought um and with Greg having such a narrow path to victory which in my opinion in this fight he's not going to be able to go out there and Jorgen DeCastro him or go out there and Ben Sassoli him he's not going to do that to Tybura Tybura will be able to outpace him outvolume him and if he needs to take this fight to the ground I'm pretty confident that he'll be able to do so probably in that second or third round um the only issue here with Tybura is if his chin can take the damage. Now, we know that Greg Hardy uh, does hit really, really hard. He is very powerful. But if he's not able to get that finish, it's going to be very, very tough for him to actually secure this uh, to, to secure this fight. I think um, Tybura is going to push him a little bit more, which may bring out the, the finisher in Hardy. And again, if he's not able to finish, if Tybura uses his aggressiveness against him and takes him down, it's going to be a long night for Greg Hardy or a short night. If Tybura goes out there and just starts ground and pounding him and Greg Hardy doesn't really know how to get back to his feet. So um, I don't know how you can confidently trust Greg Hardy here. I think the only way that you play him is if you take him inside the distance because he is the slight favor here. Um, fight doesn't go to decision is minus 150, which is very interesting. 
Hardy to win inside the distance is plus 135. Tybura to win inside the distance is plus 385. And I, I don't think that's a bad spot. Tybura round three probably would be something that I look to pinpoint. Plus 1400, I think that's a solid spot. But uh, yeah, if Hardy's not able to get the finish, it's going to be very, very tough for him to win a decision here. So I'm actually going to go with the dog. And uh, I think this line has kind of been hovering around that even money line. But I think Tybur is very, very live here. As long as he doesn't get knocked out, he should be able to um, put a bit of a clinic here on Greg Hardy, uh, hopefully avoid the big shots, and then start mixing in some takedowns and have a really good overall fight. So I'm going with Marcin here. I think is a very, very solid spot. I like fading guys that have a very narrow path to victory, which is a knockout. And then on top of that, having a suspect gas tank. It could get very ugly for Greg Hardy in there very quickly. So I'm going with Tybura to win this fight either by third round TKO or uh, via decision. Magic Marlin Moraes versus Rob Font. We got minus 145 for Magic Marlin and plus 125 for Rob Font. So let's start off with Rob here. Um, he's coming off a two-fight winning streak right now uh, with wins over Sergio Pettis in December of 2018 and then uh, a, a decision victory over Ricky Simone in December of 2019. And now here he is once again fighting a year later in December of 2020 against Marlon Moraes. Easily the most important fight of his career in terms of having a really high-named opponent. I think the highest level of opponent he's faced in terms of name recognition, probably Rafael Asuncio, a fight that he came up short in. Um, Pedro Munoz was a big fight for him. He lost that via guillotine. He did fight John Lineker as well, and he lost that via decision. So not really the best performances uh, against these uh, high le- or top-level names. But uh, Sergio Pettis and Ricky Simone are not bad names to have on your record as well in terms of uh, wins. But Marlon Reich would easily you know, um, blow away the rest of the, the names in terms of recognition level and experience. So this is definitely a very, very important uh, fight for Rob. So uh, stylistically, based on the fighters that have given Marlon Marais troubles, Rob Font fits that mold pretty, pretty well. Um, however, I don't think that uh, people can, uh, you know, technique by technique and skill by skill compare Rob Font to a Corey Sandhagen, who was the last person to take out Marlon Marais back in... I want to say July or August, October. Jesus, I'm, I was way off on that. Uh, but yeah, so uh, that was the last time we did see uh, Marlon Moraes. And Corey Sandhagen is such a unique fighter. Like he has blends of Dominic Cruz and TJ Dillashaw and just his own style of great footwork, being able to stay out of the range of big shots from his opponents and just throwing all these weird shots from weird angles that truly catches people off guard. Now, Rob Fon is a little bit more of a traditional Muay Thai fighter, kickboxer, has a, a very solid jab, just as Sergio Pettis absolutely lit his face up for 15 minutes with just his left hand alone. Um, he's, a, he's a great fighter in terms of uh, a stand-up striking, um, showed decent takedown defense against Ricky Simone in the second and third rounds, did get taken down in that first. Uh, I do think that Simone is a stronger wrestler than Moraes, so I think if uh, you know maybe Moraes gets fought down in the first, Probably will struggle in the second and third, as we've seen cardio issues from Marlon Moraes when he's been pushed and pressured. Now, I'm not completely and 100% sold on Rob Fontier in terms of being able to bring that out of Marlon, which is, you know, st- continuously sticking that jab out there while staying out of the way of the big shots. Um, Rob Font does like to trade in the pocket a little bit, which is something that I would not advise against a guy who hits as hard as Marlon Moraes. Uh, Moraes, something that he showed in his fight with Henry Suhudo is that he has a mean leg kick, and it definitely d- did throw Suhudo off his game a little bit uh, until Suhudo just said, fuck it, and then he started marching forward and really started to 
disrespect the power of Marlon. Maybe he just felt as though that the power from Marlon was really gone by that point, which is why he started pushing forward, really attacking the body. Did a really good job of working his knees in the clinch too. That really seemed to demoralize Marlon. But uh, Rob could potentially do the same thing here. Um, my issue though is I, I, I just... I need to see Rob against this type of competition and come out with a W. You know, I mean, again, he's when he's facing the top of the top, uh, he comes up short. But this is a good opportunity for him to go out there and establish a game plan that has seemingly worked against Marlon Moraes in the past. Um, now, talking a little bit about Marlon, we did a little bit gloss over his fights with Corey Sandigan and Henry Cejudo. That uh, Jose Aldo fight was very, very close. You know, he rocks him to be uh, to start off the fight with a beautiful lead uh, head kick with his uh, lead leg, something that he knocked out Jimmy Rivera with as well. So uh, he, he definitely has a ton of power in his punches. And most of his wins have come via finish. Uh, so when fights do get pushed to a decision, they get very, very close. He's had three decisions in the UFC. Uh, he's two and one with them but all three of them have come via split decision so his fights are very very close he doesn't throw which with a crazy amount of volume but he does throw with uh, fight ending intentions so if he's able to rock or drop you or significantly hurt you but not finish you there is a good chance that the judges could potentially give him that round just as that first round with jose Aldo went in my opinion and the third round though of that Aldo fight he seemed like he was slowing down a little bit and he was the one backpedaling pretty much the whole time but he did land the better shots which I which is what I think the judges saw and uh which is why they gave him that third round or at least two of them gave him that third round to uh to get that decision there um here against Font though I think that Font would come with a little bit more of a uh a little bit more of a technical game plan when it comes to the striking especially in the third round when Marlon Reich might not be at his optimal um but it depends on the pace that Font puts on. If Font goes out there and just tries to dilly-dally and just throw a couple of combinations here and there and not really kind of stagger or or threaten Marlon Moraes, Marlon's just going to walk through his shots and then easily counter him and possibly put him out. That's what's kind of keeping me away from Rob Font here. He should win this fight. And you guys know me, I don't really like to... Uh, bet on fighters or back fighters that one have cardio issues and two have a very narrow path to victory which is a knockout which seemingly seems to be what Marlon Moraes needs here uh, but you can't just overlook what he's done in the past the guy is a proven finisher Rob Font only been finished once via, via guillotine I believe that was by uh, Pedro Munoz who probably has one of the nastiest guillotines in the game let's be honest but what Marlon Moraes here um, has finishes by a a wide variety of methods head kicks guillotine chokes knees uh head kick and punches like the guy definitely goes out there and gets the gets the job done if he needs to so he can definitely be very dangerous here against font if font isn't on the tip top of his game because if he slips up a little bit and marlon marais lands a shot he could definitely hurt rob font so that's uh, something that he's got to worry about um I, i've been bouncing back and forth in terms of which side i would want to predict here and if i would want to make a bet at all i absolutely don't want to make a bet on this fight it's just it's a very very tough one to call uh in terms of knockdowns rob font has not been knocked down in the ufc at all uh he has been hurt a couple times but in terms of an official knock <coughs> apologies almost choked on my spit there for a second but uh in terms of an official knockdown he's never actually been knocked down in the ufc so that's uh concerning if you're a marlon Moraes backer now i'll take rob font to win this fight via decision but uh 
even though he's an underdog, I, I just don't feel the need to really pull the trigger on him here. Marlon Rice is still very dangerous. A lot of people want to write him off because of his couple losses that he's had in the UFC and the method that they came. But uh, this is a three-round fight, and if anything, that's better for Marlon here. Um especially if this does go into that third round. If it was five rounds, we've seen him have a little bit more trouble in those types of fights. But uh, here in a three-rounder, I think that uh, his ability to win uh, goes up much more significantly. So uh, I, I still favor Font here. Uh, again, not enough to actually make a bet, even at plus money, but he should be able to go out there and decision uh, Marlon Reich, who isn't normally a, a high-output guy, which will uh, definitely bite him in the ass here. So as long as Rob Font can stay active, keep his jab sticking out there, uh, really bust up the face of Marlon, maybe even go to the body a little bit too to really start sucking that wind a little earlier for Marlon. Uh, that would definitely pay dividends for Rob Font later in the fight. So once again, I'll go with Rob Font to win this fight via decision, but do not overlook Magic Marlon Moraes. Michel Pereira versus Chaos Williams. And this fight is currently lined at minus 130 for Demolador. Uh, Pereira and plus 110 for Chaos Williams. Uh, obviously, the over-under is going to be set at one and a half here with it being at even money and the fight doesn't go to decision at minus 300. So that makes absolute sense. We got, uh, we'll start off with Demolador, uh, Michel Pereira. He's coming off a one victory right now. Should be two technically if, uh, you know, that uh, illegal knee didn't hit or hit on Diego Sanchez. But he came back pretty strong after that Tristan Connolly loss. That was a fight where tried to show out a little bit more than he should have and unfortunately paid for it his gas tank looked horrible uh, i believe he came in overweight that night as well too uh yeah he weighed in at 172 so just missed the mark of the welterweight 171 limit uh and then he paid for his antics at the beginning of the fight uh really gassed out we saw tristan Carnley really take advantage there uh and then he came back and really cleaned his shit up against uh diego sanchez and had a great performance up until the point that uh you know sanchez uh you know took that way out in the zalim imadai fight he looked really really good um Fortunately for him, he was able to get the 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 finish there, per se. I believe Chris Tyone stepped in a little bit too early, thinking that Zalim Imadiev had ta tapped. Uh, instead, it looked like Zalim was looking for um, Michelle's hands so he could at least break the lock and get out of that choke. Uh, regardless, Pereira gets the victory. Uh, you know, I feel bad for anybody that had uh, Pereira via decision. or uh, And then obviously the people that had him inside the distance, you guys cashed with like 11 seconds left or 21 seconds left, I should say. So shout out to you guys. But he looked great. You know, he, he looks good when he's able to conserve his gas tank. Uh, he still is a little bit wacky, you know, does some of his uh, Superman punches and spinning shit and then and, and jumping shit. But it's not as over-exaggerated as it was in that Tristan Connolly fight. So he's able to go, you know, the full three rounds uh, against other guys that don't really go away. Um, so, you know, I was very much impressed with his, his performance against Zalim. He was effective when he needed to be. Um, I think his best, most effective combination is just his one-two down the middle. But he he covers the distance so quickly. He's so explosive and 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 again covers the distance very very quickly uh, and kind of catches his opponents off guard. Uh, so he might be able to be successful with that here against Chaos. Now Chaos, I think his best way to catch Michelle here is going to be with a counter. So. Uh, I'd be surprised to see him kind of just throwing combinations out there for the hell of it. But I think he's going to be waiting for Michelle to kind of close that distance and then maybe drop, uh, you know, drop him with something like that. It's crazy the amount of power that Chaos was able to generate against um, 
against uh, Razak Al Hassan last time. I mean, I paid for that one pretty, pretty rough. That one hurt because I was shitting on chaos that whole week, you know. But uh, you know, getting a quick victory over Al Hassan sort of doesn't really show us too much. Uh, it only lasted thirty seconds, uh, and he threw, you know, some probably the straightest shots he's ever thrown in his career. So if he's able to keep that up throughout the the consistency of a fifteen minute fight, if that's what it uh, takes, um, he could look better. But I feel like once he starts to suck wind a little bit, and if he's not able to get his opponents out of there that winging style is going to come back to bite him in the butt. And I feel like once fighters are, are gassed and they start like sucking wind, they truly go back to their bad habits, which in Chaos's Williams, uh, Chaos Williams's case, I believe it's, uh, you know, his winging hooks and, and kind of his sloppy technique when it comes to the striking realm. But when you have crazy power, like Mr. Francis Ngannou, it doesn't really matter how bad your technique is. As long as it finds the head, the chin, the temple, whatever it is of your opponent, he could definitely crumple them. Uh, in this fight, though, I feel like it's a little bit tough because um, it's going to be harder to track down Pereira, which is why I think that his counters for Chaos is probably the best way he's going to catch Pereira here. Um, you know, he's never dealt with anybody who fights as weirdly as Michelle, but then again, anybody who hasn't fought Michelle before has never faced anybody like that. Like, the closest comparisons are like uh, Tony Ferguson and, and Brandon Royval, guys that don't mind, you know, throwing spinning shit and just being a little bit wacky in their approach when they're striking. Um, again, th that combination that put out Al Hassan, like, it was weird because it was like a, uh, a pull right, he throws the right hand, but doesn't really throw it to its fullest extent, then throws the left hand. And in that time, Al Hassan is countering with the leg kick, but absolutely leaves the center of his guard open. And then we see Al Hassan pull that right hand back and throw it once again. And it wasn't even full force. Like he, like he threw it, pulled it back halfway, and then threw it again. And that landed right on the button of Al Hassan and absolutely crumpled him, stiffed him. Absolutely. But uh, yet, it's not going to be often that he lands that punch, which... Uh, which leads me to still want to fade him in the future. Now, here against Michelle, I feel like it's a good opportunity to fade him. However, I just don't feel comfortable pulling the trigger here because at any time, if Pereira like, just slips up a little bit on some of his wacky entries with the spinning shit or anything like that and Chaos clips him, it could be night-night for him. So I, I, I'd need somebody a little bit more technically sound to go out there and, and fade Chaos against. So a part of me hopes that Chaos actually knocks out Pereira here. The legend of Chaos continues to grow and we get a better price to potentially fade him in the future. Um, however, I'm still going to side with Pereira here. I feel like it's going to be a little bit too hard for Chaos to track him down. Uh, you know, solid leg kicks, solid spilling, spinning back kick from Pereira. Whatever Pereira can do, it's it's insane, especially given his size and his strength and and like his fluidity with his movement. The guy's six one with a seventy three inch reach. Uh, we got six foot with a seventy seven inch reach for Williams, but obviously, given the style of Pereira, uh, that reach advantage kind of just goes out the window. We don't really get to see it. You see it take more effect in a more of a traditional fight where guys are a little bit more technical and like to stick with their basics. Not these guys. <laughs> these guys don't really like to stick with that. So um, once again, I, I do like Pereira. Um, I'll give the toughness to Chaos. Like we've seen him take some shots and he still keeps coming. So if anything, uh, I'm going to go with Pereira to win via decision. I think the over one and a half might be a good spot as well. Uh, but that's going to be probably one of the toughest one and a half that you're going to have to sweat ever given the type of power that Chaos has. So if he lands, you know, that perfect shot against uh, Pereira, it's going to get uh, it's going to get rough. So I'll still go with Pereira. I, I'll, I'll say that he out volumes uh, Chaos here. 
uh, stays away from the power and pulls off a decision victory. So uh, once again, Michelle Pereira to win this fight via decision. Jose Aldo versus Marlon Vera. We got minus 160 on the former 145 pound for pound champion. Well, I guess that's kind of redundant to say, but uh, the former champion and a legend goat at 145 pounds jose aldo now at 135 obviously uh we got minus 160 on him and plus 140 on marlon vera and this line absolutely blows my mind i have no idea why the hell it's as close as it is uh unless people want to continue to bake recency bias into this now if some of you saw that podcast that i was on with rockstar z i did mention that uh i feel like there's a ton of recency bias baked into uh the fights coming up at UFC 256, as well as the fights, uh, you know, on, on December 19th for this podcast. Um, and, and it's true, like the Tony Ferguson line should not be as close as it is, in my opinion. And now this Jose Aldo line continues to to baffle me. Like the fact that it's actually jumping around as much as it is, like it opened up minus 160, got down to minus 185, and then back up to minus 160. And I'm just ready to to lock this in <laughs> like i truly think that this is a very very strong uh matchup here for Jose Aldo to get back onto the winning track um now let, let's break down what we've seen from aldo recently like he had that uh he's on a three-fight losing streak first and foremost the marlon marash fight was very very close i remember that me and tony actually ended up doing a deciding split for that fight and we did end up giving it to marlon marash ever so slightly very very close fights but you can absolutely make a case for Jose Aldo winning that fight too he looked great it was his first fight down at 135 pounds. A lot of people expected him to get knocked out in that first round. You know, he did get rocked within that first 20 seconds from that lead high kick from Marlon Moraes, which has caught Jimmy Rivera in the past and a couple of other guys. But very sneaky uh, head kick that Marlon Moraes has. Uh, kind of stumbled Jose Aldo. Didn't drop him, but stumbled him. Uh, but then after that, Jose Aldo woke up and he had a really solid second round. Had a decent third round, but I felt like Marlon Moraes was just had having a little bit more output. Um, but I was impressed with what I saw with Aldo. If anything, his stock rose that fight, even off of a loss. You know, a lot of people were expecting him to to look like a, a complete scrub that night, especially with it being his first fight at 135 pounds. The, the, the pictures that we were seeing leading up to that fight just did not make it look like Aldo was healthy at all. But he came in there and just proved everybody wrong. Like, the guy was still going at it in that third round. He was the one moving forward. He didn't look that gassed. Um, and, and he looked great. Now, the Piotr Jan fight, obviously, is completely unmatched by a guy who's much closer to his prime than Jose Aldo is. Um, but uh, he he managed to steal that second round from uh, Jan. Even that first round, that was a very competitive first round. But uh, Jan obviously edged it out there. The second round, I thought Jose Aldo did very well too. He established his leg kick, something that we've been banging on him to do for the last several fights now. Um, and it worked for him pretty well. Unluckily for him though, Piotr Jan is just as comfortable in his southpaw stance as he is as as he is in his orthodox stance, which, you know, uh, for Piotr Jan to, like, pull that lead leg back and switch stances wasn't that bad for him. He was still landing good combinations on Aldo. And then, um, obviously, we see a catch-up to him in the third, fourth, and finally getting that fifth-round finish. That's where we see Jose Aldo start to fade, and that's where, like, the, 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 the myth of Jose Aldo started to, like, go away. Like, yeah, getting knocked out by Conor McGregor in 13 seconds... That's one thing. But then to go out there and get dominated by Max, Max Holloway twice in the same fashion, you know, seeing him, uh, you know, uh, have a decent first round and then start to taper off. That was very concerning. Uh, but still managed to squeeze in victories over Frankie Edgar, Jeremy Stevens, and, uh, and Anato Moicano 
in the midst of all that chaos and losing that he was going through. Then he goes out there and gets outsmarted and out game planned by Alexander Volkanovsky. It wasn't a blowout, but it was a decisive 30-27 for Alexander Volkanovsky, who knew the exact game plan that he needed to go out there and commit to to get the victory against Aldo. Chip away at that lead leg, initiate um, the clinch, and, and kind of overpower him, land some good uh, knees in the clinch, um, and even... Like following up his leg kicks with strikes kind of threw Aldo off. So solid game plan there from Volkanovski to get the victory there. And then Marlon Moraes, very competitive fight, very, very competitive. Um, and then obviously the Piotr Jan one kind of outmatched there over a five-minute stretch. Uh, or sorry, a five-round stretch. Now here against Marlon Vera, he's taking a significant uh, step down, in my opinion. Out of all the guys that he's fought since Conor McGregor way back in uh, December 2015, I think this is the lowest level of opponent that he's fought. And I'm not trying to shit on Marlon Vera. I think he's a great fighter. I think he has some good potential. But compared to the guys that he was fighting earlier, I'd say that Marlon Vera is probably not at their level. If anything, you could say that he's probably better than Jeremy Stevens. But even that... <clears throat> Let's not forget that everybody pretty much was on the Jeremy Stevens train that night. And uh, Jose Aldo came in as a betting underdog. Very insane how crazy this uh, this betting game is, especially with MMA and the whole... Uh, I saw my guy AMG Warrior Bet put out a, a tweet earlier today talking about um, this is a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately kind of sport that you're betting on. And you got to kind of wipe that slate clean and just, just focus on what a fighter is actually good at and how they match up with the opponent that they're going up against. Obviously, you have to take a little bit into consideration with how they look as of late. But when you're losing the guys like Max Holloway, Alexander Volkanovsky, Marlon Reich, Piotr Jan. There's no way that you should be going in there as anything less than a minus 200 favorite uh, to Marlon Vera. So the fact that it's even better than minus 200 has me absolutely mind blown. Now, I'm recording this on pretty much the the night right before UFC 256. So maybe once 256 is done, we're going to see a significant movement in that Jose Aldo line, uh, which is why I'm looking to, to probably uh, place my bet for that very, very shortly to, to get a solid line here. Um, but Jose Aldo, man, he still looks good. He still looks crisp. Like, when he's on, he's on. And the one thing about Marlon Vera, if we watched that last fight against Sugar Sean O'Malley, it seemed like he was very hesitant. And he's admitted in the past before that he's a slow starter. You can't go out there and be a slow starter against a guy like Jose Aldo. Jose Aldo is going to just tear you up. And we saw Jose Aldo kind of go back to his leg-kicking game against Piotr Jan. If he does that against Marlon Vera, he's going to absolutely kick his leg into the stands. Um, his his boxing still looks good. His body work looks amazing. Like, uh, when he finished Renato Moicano, uh, he rocks him to the head. I believe it was with an uppercut. But as he's chasing him down, he's body-hunting, he's head-hunting. Like, he's really going out there and just trying to put together a full, complete uh, striking game to get his guys out of there. And you really think that Marlon Vera is going to stand up to those strikes to Jose Aldo? Come on, guys. Like, I, I just don't see any which way that Marlon Vera wins here. I don't see him winning a decision. I think he's, he, he's going to get chewed up for two rounds. I think he's going to be a little bit too intimidated. And I think he's going to be a little bit uh, too hesitant to throw against Jose Aldo, kind of in fear of what's going to be coming back to him. Jose Aldo still has speed. He still has, uh, you know, a solid technical advantage here over Marlon Vera. You know, Vera's confidence is probably at an all-time all high after beating Sean O'Malley last time around. But he looked hesitant up until that point that he realized that uh, O'Malley was hurt. Once he realized O'Malley was hurt, that's when he started to go for the kill. What's he going to do with Jose Aldo, though? Is he just going to continue to wait? He's going to get chewed up if that's the case. There's no way you're going to tell me that Marlon Vera is going to knock this guy out. The only guy to knock out uh, Jose Aldo, like clean, was Conor McGregor. You're not telling me that uh, Vera's going to go out there and establish a game plan similar to Max Holloway. 
yeah, he's going to have a little bit of a range on Jose Aldo. Let's let's get the actual numbers for that. We got 5.770 inch reach for uh, Jose Aldo, 5.870.5 inch reach for uh, Vera. So yeah, very, very slight uh, height advantage and slight reach advantage here for uh, Marlon Vera. So I don't think it's going to have much uh, to do in terms of him being able to establish that type of game plan that Max Holloway did. There's no way he can replicate that. Holloway is an absolute beast and a, and a, and a high-level 145er for this exact reason. So uh, at 135, I think we can throw out the claims that Jose Aldo, you know, shouldn't be coming down to 135 anymore. He looks great. You know, he, he in his performances, he's definitely showing that he's still there. But it's when fights get stretched into that fourth or fifth round that he's going to start to wind down and really start to uh, show his exhaustion. We only have three rounds in this fight. Luckily for Aldo, he only has to go out there and fight for 15 minutes. And I'm sure those 15 minutes are going to be absolute hell for Marlon Vera. I just don't see any which way that Vera wins this fight. And why this line is as close as it is, blowing my mind just as much. So I, I like Jose Aldo here. Uh, I think he wipes the floor with Marlon Vera here. Uh, I, again, I, that sounds a little bit too aggressive towards Vera. Again, I'm sure the guy's a great guy. I, I, I'm i a fan of his. The, just seeing his progression and seeing his confidence rise with every single fight is great. But I still think at this point in time, they're both, uh, sorry, Jose Aldo's 34, uh, Marlon Vera's 28. Um, so obviously, uh, you know, Vera's still growing. Uh, he's getting closer to his peak, whereas Aldo's probably tapering off from his peak. But given out where they are and what we've seen from both guys recently, I still think that Jose Aldo could go out there and, and absolutely smash Marlon Vera here. Uh, one last thing I do want to talk about that Song Yudong fight. Like Song kind of put in the game plan that you're going to want to go up against uh, with Marlon Vera uh, if you're at least Jose Aldo. But I feel like Jose Aldo is going to be able to like take that game plan and just make it his own and, and be a lot more aggressive and effective with it uh, compared to what we saw from Song Yudong that night. A lot of people are you know upset about that decision too. Many people thought Marlon Vera won that fight. I believe me and Tony went over it, and I think we did pick Song Yudong actually taking that decision. But yeah, Jose Aldo is an absolute monster still. I think he's going to go out there and still be very competitive with these top 10, top 5 guys. But Piotr Jan is just another level for him right now. Like, I'd like to see Jose Aldo against Aljo. I'd like to see him against Corey Sandhagen. I'd love to see those types of matchups. But here against Marlon Vera, I think it's just too much for Vera at this point in time. He's, I don't think he's ever going to beat a guy like Jose Aldo. So... Uh, yeah, I'm a little bit long-winded here, but I'm very, very strong on Jose Aldo in this in this spot. How he's anywhere worse than even minus two fifty, in my opinion, minus two hundred, insane, insane. If you if you got that line better than minus two hundred or even better than minus two fifty, I'd hop all over that. Uh, also, whether this is going to be inside the distance or uh, decision, I'm still unsure of. I'm not hundred percent sure what side I'm going to go here. Um, you know, Vera is very durable. Hasn't been finished in the UFC. Hasn't been finished ever. You know what I mean? So that's something to take in consideration. But then again, he's never fought anybody to the level of Jose Aldo. So that could change to, uh, that night. So uh, I'll go with Aldo. Man, I'll take him inside the distance. But in terms of a straight bet, you're getting a ton of value on him all the way up to minus 250, in my opinion. So once again, I'll go with Jose Aldo as probably my strongest play on this card. Uh, and I'm taking him to win inside the distance via TKO. Time for the main event of the evening we got steven wonderboy thompson going up against jeff neal we got minus 105 for steven thompson and minus 115 for jeff neal uh interesting thing about this line it did open up at minus 170 for steven thompson and we've been seeing money come in now on uh hands of steel 
uh, Jeff Neal. And uh, I kind of understand it, but once you really start to dig into the tape, uh, you kind of agree with the opening line a little bit more. So let's start off with one boy Thompson who hasn't really been fighting all that often. Um, you know, he fought uh, four fights ago. He fought short-haired Jorge Masvidal uh, back at, in November of 2017 at UFC 217. Since then, he's gone one and two. Uh, he lost a very close fight to Darren Till in May of 2018 in a fight that could have been scored either way. Very low volume fight, uh, not too much happening, no real significant moments in that fight either. Uh, but it's kind of been a running joke for the last little bit that uh, Wonderboy Thompson had actually beaten Darren Till that night. Let's not forget, I believe that was the night that it was in Liverpool as well. So obviously there was a bit of a home field advantage for the gorilla Darren Till. Uh, the Anthony Pettis fight. Uh, that happened in March of 2019, and I think uh, most people remember that fight as uh, Wonderboy Thompson pretty much letting up Anthony Pettis for about nine minutes before Anthony Pettis pulls out this Superman punch, jump off the cage type of uh, attack against Wonderboy that really caught Wonderboy off uh, off guard. Just I don't think Wonderboy saw that at all. And uh, one of the funnier things that's been going around now is Wonderboy Thompson kind of reacting to himself getting uh, KTFO'd by Anthony Pettis there. And then after, uh, you know, eight months after that, in uh, November of 2019 at UFC 244, we see Wonderboy make his return against Vicente Luque in a fight that was pretty much lined at a pick'em. I think I actually betted, uh, bet Wonderboy at slight uh, plus money. Um, but Wonderboy showed that he still had it in that fight. Arguably, probably the best performance that he's had in a long time, even though he has a couple victories in that amount of time as well too. But that that performance against Vicente Luque, who a lot of people thought was going to go out there and win this fight, um, Wonderboy Thompson showed up, you know, had absolutely amazing counters, uh, good kicks as well too. But his his two from the southpaw stance is probably one of his best weapons because he catches a lot of guys off guard with how fast it is. And uh, considering how quickly he's able to close distance with that karate stance that he has, where he's just on the ball, uh, balls of his toes or balls of his feet, really just hopping around, hopping around. It allows him to close distance so quickly because he's able to kind of just lunge in almost. And it catches a lot of opponents off guard. He did drop the Sente Luque a couple times with the two. Um, He's very sneaky with his with his uh, with his strikes. Even when he's in the southpaw position, the way he's able to throw his lead jab, which is normally his like power hand as well too, when he's in the orthodox position. But when he's in the southpaw position, uh, his lead hand really comes very well over the counter or the jab of his opponents, uh, especially for opponents that aren't really used to dealing with opponents that are able to uh, switch stances as fluently as a Wonderboy Thompson. But uh, yeah, he caught uh, Jorge Masvidal numerous times with it, Darren Till, Vicente Luque as well. Just a sneak lead hook right over uh, the, the the incoming jab from his opponent. So uh, Wonderboy sh still showed that he had it in that uh, Vicente Luque fight. Now he's about two to max three months away from turning 38 years old. This is where the age probably starts creeping up on some guys. You know, I always say the last thing to go with fighters is their power. Uh, so we, we get uh, something that Wonderboy really um, uh, revolves his game around is his speed. So at what point is that going to start to go? But it didn't show at all in his last fight. Against Vicente Luque, he looked sharp as hell. Um, that was over a year ago now. So how much has uh, this time off really affected Wonderboy? We really don't know. But going over to the Jeff Neal side, we're talking about a guy who's kind of on the up and up now. Um, he's 30 years old. Uh, he's on a three, six, seven fight winning streak. His last loss was actually January of 2017, where he lost via KO to Kevin Holland, 
who now fights at middleweight in the UFC division and obviously had a huge win over Jacare Souza this past weekend. But uh, in that fight, it looked like Jeff Neal really had some issues dealing with the length, range, and the kicking of Kevin Holland, who was able to keep him on the outside for the majority of the fight. There were a couple uh, takedowns that Neal was able to secure, did some good damage from on top. But once this fight was on the feet, he seemed really kind of flabbergasted with the unorthodox uh, striking approach of Kevin Holland. And uh, it looked to me almost like he was starting to suck wind a little bit in that third round too, when he wasn't really having success uh, in kind of uh, corralling Kevin Holland and letting his hands go. And that's the one thing that Jeff Neal really uh, kind of focuses his game around is his hands. Yeah, he does have a nice head kick, the one that he put away with Mike Perry with, the one that he rocked Mike Perry with as well too. Uh, he rocked uh, Nico Price with it as well. But it's that's really pretty much where it stays. Like it, most of his his striking does come from his hands. That's where he feels most comfortable, and he's most comfortable when people are willing to be in that uh, you know that pocket range with him rather than being at the kicking range that Kevin Holland was at and the kind of range that Wonderboy Thompson normally fights at. So I think that this is a, a fight kind of catered to Wonderboy's style. This is going to be a tricky one for Jeff Neal. He's never really fought anybody as technically sound as Wonderboy Thompson and a guy that you have to be very mindful of when you're striking with this guy. Like Bilal Muhammad, great all-around fighter, but he's no Wonderboy Thompson when it comes to the striking game. Nico Price, another guy who had some success with the kicks as well too, and kind of if you when he was able to keep the range with Jeff Neal, he had some uh, he had some success. But then really when you really start to trade in the pocket with Jeff Neal is where uh, it got a little bit tricky for him. Same with Mike Perry, we already know what kind of striker he is, so that was kind of tailor made towards Jeff Neal's style. But with Wonderboy, I, I gotta say this is the most seasoned veteran and high level striker that Jeff Neal has faced to this point. And I think it's going to be a little bit tough on him. Not to mention that we got five rounds of this thing too. So if he's not able to go out there and put out Stephen Thompson within the first two rounds or three rounds, I think that type of style is really going to start to catch up to Neil. You know, Wonderboy doing a good job of kind of keeping him on the outside. Has a sneaky lead uh, calf kick that he throws every now and then as well too. Uh, but I think Neil's going to have a lot of tough times uh, trying to corral Wonderboy and, and try to have his hands going. The best he can really do is kind of just hope that he can counter Wonderboy Thompson and land a big enough shot to kind of put Thompson away or or, or hurt him or try to steal rounds that way. But I, f I find it hard. The more that I really look into it, like I wanted to back Jeff Neal in this spot, but um, I truly think that the the tricks and the, the, the seasoned veteran style of Wonderboy Thompson on the feet is going to really give Jeff Neal problems. Now, if Jeff Neal can't win the strike, can he take into the grappling room? I don't think so. Wonderboy Thompson's done a good job of kind of keeping fights on the feet, moving his feet well enough so that he doesn't get taken down. And even if he does get taken down, he's pretty much right back to his feet immediately. So uh, I don't really see that style from Jeff Neal either, who's not really known to be a guy that goes for takedowns either, right? So that's a that's a little bit of a different uh, feel for him there. Yeah, he ground and pounded Nico Price. You know, that was a, a good one there where he uh, had some success in terms of hurting Nico Price and then obviously finished with some ground and pound. But Wonderboy is a different beast. He's a different monster. Uh, my only concern here is, you know, he's about to be 38 years old. Is this the fight where his speed really starts to give up on him? Because he is heavily reliant on that. Again, with his karate base, uh, he's more of like a blitzing kind of striker where he closes the distance very quickly, lands a couple shots, and doesn't really discriminate either in terms of which where he's throwing his shots. He does a good job of mixing up the body, the kicks, and the head. So that's really going to throw off Jeff Neal, in my opinion, too. 
Uh, Jeff Neal also, one thing that would have benefited him is if he was more of a blitzing type of fighter as well too, because that might be the only way to to really catch uh, Wonderboy Thompson, especially when you're uh, w- when you're the one going first. But that's where Wonderboy Thompson really sets his traps too. He's a great counter puncher, and that's where I think he's looking for here against Jeff Neal is landing for that, uh, waiting for that perfect spot to throw that perfect uh, punch or combination or kick. Um, one thing that I think is quite live in this uh, fight as well is a Wonderboy finish. And I think a lot of people are going to raise their eyebrows at that. But Wonderboy by TKO is plus 300. Wonderboy inside the distance is plus 275. But over five rounds, I truly think that we could see Jeff Neal make a mistake, uh, a very unfortunate mistake that could give Wonderboy Thompson, you know, an opportunity to pounce. And especially if this fight goes later and later. That frustration of Jeff Neal trying to catch Wonderboy Thompson is just going to catch up to him. It's going to start making him suck wind. It's really going to start to affect his energy. And Wonderboy, I truly believe, is going to be able to capitalize on that. So I like Wonderboy to win this fight late. I think he could probably finish Jeff Neal in probably round four, round five. And again, I do have some question marks regarding Jeff Neal's gas tank. And if you want to go back and look through his record, most of his wins have come via finish or, you know, most of his fights have come via finish. Bilal Muhammad, that was a fight that went to a decision. But if you watch that third round, it looks like he starts to, not saying that he's completely gassed and like, like he looks like fucking Andrew Sanchez is used to look or used to look in third rounds, but he looked, he looked a little bit more compromised. You know, something that I feel like Wonderboy Thompson would be able to take advantage of. Um, that's why we saw Bilal Muhammad with his foot on the gas that last minute or so because he saw and noticed Jeff Neal was slowing down a little bit. And yeah, Jeff Neal still threw some decent combinations, but I think that it's going to be tough to catch Wonderboy Thompson if you're in that type of state. Uh, the other fights that he won via decision were earlier in his career in 2013 and 2014. But uh, if you look at those, uh, the record of those guys now, so that when he fought Armando Servin, uh, Servin was 3-1. and one. He's 4-6 and six now. How about Christopher Anthony, who we also beat by decision? He's 10 and 10 now. So should give you a little bit of uh, an idea of uh, the type of competition that he was able to beat going to a decision. And I don't want to shit all over Bilal Muhammad because Jeff Neal definitely has made progress. And he did put on some good combination against uh, Bilal Muhammad. But that's where he wins it. When fighters are able or, or willing to trade in the pocket with him, Jeff Neal is very crisp with his hands. He throws great combinations. And again, he has a great head kick as well too. But Wonderboy Thompson is an absolutely different beast when it comes to the striking game. And uh, he ate some good shots from Vicente Luque, so I don't think that his chin is completely compromised, even though Anthony Pettis put him out. But we all know it's those shots that we don't see coming that truly put you out. And outside of that head kick that Jeff Neal throws, I'm not sure if Wonderboy Thompson is really going to get caught by something that he doesn't see coming. Um, yeah, I like Wonderboy in this fight. Um, I will more than likely have a bet on him here. I want to see, uh, you know, where this line shakes out. I know there's a lot of steam on Jeff Neal right now because he's the up and coming hot shit right now. But uh, this is all about styles and and how they match up against each other. And I think Wonderboy is going to give him a bit of a headache dealing with that type of karate stand style, that in and out movement, uh, the sneaky left hand that he has from the southpaw position. Um, yeah, it's it's gonna it's really gonna mess with Jeff Neal. I think Jeff Neal probably has maybe a round, maybe two rounds to really figure out this puzzle that is Wonderboy Thompson. But after that, I think it, the frustration is really going to catch up to him and we see a, a finish on uh, Stephen Wonderboy Thompson's side later in this fight. So I'll go with Wonderboy via KO either round four or round five. I would definitely be hitting those props too as I feel like that's a solid spot for Wonderboy. So once again, I'll go with Wonderboy via round four or round five finish.
And those are the breakdowns. Shout out to everybody that checked out the podcast. Shout out to everybody that hit subscribe, hit like, and shout out to everybody even more for uh, hitting up the Patreon. Again, we're at 220, just over that. Hoping to hit that 250 mark. Uh, it would have been great to do it by the end of the year. I don't think that's going to happen, but uh, it would be great to have a big event this weekend and hopefully get some more Patreon members from there. And if you're interested, again, the link is in the description below. Uh, it's a big way to help your boy out. Five bucks a month allows me to make this uh, a full-time thing. And it's all thanks to you guys. So shout out to everybody there. All right. Uh, it was a great podcast. Great year. Uh, I got a couple more things up my sleeve in terms of live streams that I want to do before the end of the year. I'm not completely disappearing after this card, but uh, I will definitely be taking a lot of time to just sit back on wine, disconnect from the MMA world and just hang out with the family and uh, enjoy my time and, and kind of just reset before we get back into the grind of things uh, with uh, three events in one fucking week uh, with January 16th, 20th and 23rd, I believe, uh, being the pay-per-view event, Conor McGregor versus Dustin Poirier, crazy event there. But yeah, this has been a great year. Hope to end in the positive with the big one this weekend. Uh, and uh, yeah, again, check out the Patreon description in the link below. Uh, this link in the description below, I should be saying. I keep fucking that up, but I still want to keep saying it. And then also, if you're interested in the Lock of the Night Challenge, make sure you DM me on Twitter. I'd be happy to set you up for that as well. All right, we're done. Hope you guys have a great event. Hope you guys have a great New Year, Christmas, all that type of stuff, end of the year stuff. And I'll see you guys in the New Year. But also, just remember... Thursday, I'll see you guys for the prop show with Cody. Friday, I'll see you guys with the rest of the odds crew. And then Saturday, I do my fight day MMA Lockcast live stream. So I'll see you guys there as well. But in terms of official MMA Lockcast podcasts, this is the last one of the year. Uh, yeah, good luck on your fights this weekend. And uh, let's make some money. Peace.